In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 2058-2071, to and as always, I hope that you enjoy. 2058 Story number 1 The Newcomers, written by Black Hat Gamer Ozzy173 They were new. We didn't know much about them. They came from an unexplored arm of the galaxy. They came in ships that were so primitive. We couldn't help but laugh. Thin aluminium hulls, no energy shields, radio-based detection and communication gear. Their sublight drives were mostly chemical rockets. They relied on so much ancient technology. It was a miracle. They left their home system. They alone made it to an entirely different arm of the galaxy. We gave them a gift to welcome them to the galaxy. A few basic quality of life improvements for their ships. They even graciously submitted to an inspection of their FTL drive to see what of the five known methods they used. That should have been our warning. That should have been the biggest red flags that these new bipedals. They kept environmental suits on the entire time they visited during first contact. Gold face base kept down obscuring their features. It was very prudent and wise of them to self-quarantine on their first ever contact. We hoped that they would stay wise and prudent in all things. What we didn't expect happened only 50 standard solar cycles after first contact with the newcomers. They arrived again in much better ships. 3D printed, they called it. They somehow looked like machines and organic. A combination of so many things. Redundancies heaped upon redundancies. Plasma shields, EM shields, and even more exotic defense weapons that we had honestly never encountered before. It was all reverse engineered from the simple technology we gifted them. They had taken the simplest of things, like the subspace communicator, and made the most unexpected technologies from them including medical technology that we are still studying and learning. We also found out that they armed all of their ships, from merchant freighters to science ships to asteroid crackers. We didn't see their warships until the Qatar decided to liberate some of the newcomers' territory. Their ships were all over weaponized crew lockers and oversized drives bolted on. They used fleet carriers, screening frigates, missile ships, everything and anything they could weaponize, they did. Even their medical ships were a kind of weapon that they used in the Qatar war packs. The Qatar expected a standard war of attrition. They didn't expect small teams of stealthy chaos bringers behind their lines. They didn't expect infrastructure sabotage, nor the tactics the newcomers called decapitation strikes, where the pack leader was the only casualty. The thing that lost the Qatar the war the fastest though, the newcomers weaponized compassion. More wounded were brought aboard their hospital ships, treated with the best medical technology, even given entire replacement limbs if needed. The Qatar wounded soldiers were rehabilitated right alongside the newcomers wounded. That's when the Qatar found out the newcomers were hypersocial apex predators like them, and they too pack bonded easily. Qatar war wounded were returned to their people as soon as they were healed enough to travel. It was unheard of for any war species to engage in such mercy. Qatar scholars asked why their enemy was so kind while at the same time being avatars of war itself. The answer the newcomers gave was shocking. They gave the entire galaxy a peek at the pre-stellar history. There wasn't a single solar cycle that wasn't absolutely dripping with the blood of their own kind. They were the Death Worlders. Their home planet was Blue Jewel Class 4 Death World Evolution gone bonkers. 
they came from a world with apex predators that dominated entire biomes. We found out why every ship was armed to warship levels of any other species. They were afraid. The newcomers were afraid of finding something out there worse than themselves. So they were on a perpetual war footing, even in their most peaceful explorations. They spoke of bugs with acid for blood, of shape-shifting predators of entire dimensions devoted to macabre and inventive methods of torture. They weren't terrified of finding these mythical monsters in space. They were terrified that we might find them first. So the newcomers always prepare, always explore, always invent as if all their existence depended on it. They didn't want to lose their new friends. The Qatar had been their closest trade partner ever since the border war at Alpha Centauri. Newcomers have started spreading to every culture, every planet, bypassing borders simply by being wanted. We are being taken over by the friendliest of occupations ever experienced on known galactic history. We want them with us, and they are all too happy to oblige. They are the friendliest, craziest monsters you'll ever meet. The humans from the Soul System. End of chapter. Story number two. The War's Lost, written by Horatio. I don't care if this gets out of hand, said Nox. You and I both know that the procedure set down for the discovery of a new sentient species. There are tests and scans and experiments that have to be performed before sapiens can be determined. As a member of the Goth, it was his job to make sure proper procedure was followed. This species is different, counted fifteen. They spent a quick moment polling the communal mind of the frob. Drones from its species did not have the capability of independent decision-making, and the Overmind returned a solution quickly. The Overmind will not support this action. We have never found a species like these humans. We fear this could lead to our annihilation. Nox considered this as he looked around the facility. The human specimen was patiently waiting the next step. They had explained the reason that she was there, and she happily complied with every examination and test so far. Nox did not see the danger that Fifteen was concerned about. Sure, this zoo was significantly stronger than average sapient due to her ultra-dense musculature, but she seemed almost a pacifist. Every time she broke some testing equipment, she was very apologetic, and seemed to fear that she had ruined humanity's chance of being classed as sapient. Look at her! He said to Fifteen, she obviously intends no harm, and according to her, humans have not been the aggressor against any sapient species. She herself said that the only battles they had ever since leaving their hellish planet were to defend themselves. Yes, but what if they take this next experiment as a threat? Asked Fifteen, we will not take part in the action that leads us to the same fate as the Rothics that tried to eat their moon. He was referring to a mindless space-born entity who traveled the stars searching for planetary bodies made of certain minerals that it processed as food. Anyone can stop the Rothics, scoffed Nox. If you insist on these tests, you will do them alone. With that, Fifteen clicked away quickly on its chitinist extremities as fast as only a hexapodal insectoid can. What happened? exclaimed Zoo. Did I do something wrong? No, no answered Nox, excreting calming sense. Nit just had to tend to some equipment. He waited until the door to the facility closed, then brought up the nerve and brain study program back up to his tablet. The next test is going to study conduction of pain along your nerves and how your brain deals with the signals. 
Nuxx approached Zoo calmly, still exuding every scent their test showed as having a calming effect on the human. Wait, what? Zoo scrabbled backwards off the soft top platform she had been lying on. No one said anything about pain. It is nothing to be concerned about. It is a simple little sting. From the information you gave us, it would be no worse than a bite of an insect. We thought maybe removing one of these, um, hairs. You stated you remove them yourself regularly anyway, and that you became accustomed to the sensation. Zoo visibly reacts. Okay. Just so long as you're not planning on torturing me or something, she said, returning to the platform. We have laws against that sort of thing. I should hope so, exclaimed Dux. Torture is forbidden across all the Federation space. I would recommend the hair on my... began Zoo. Before she could even finish, Nux reached out with an instrument and grabbed the hair near her groin and yanked it out. Hey! I wasn't ready, she shouted, rubbing the area the hair was pulled from. Apologies. The test needed something further from the brain, and those hairs were the only ones I could see that were not on your head. Nux tapped a few times on the tablet and continued. That was a sufficient baseline, and I shall not have to pull any more. Still, uh, you could have warned a girl, damn. Zoo grumbled. Makes it worse when it's not expected. Well, next replied, as I said, the test is concluded. Next, we have to test how your species reacts to something a bit more extreme. I'm not sure I like the sound of that, said Zoo nervously. What kind of extreme are we talking about here? Based on the information you have provided, began Nox. In the middle of his sentence, he quickly reached out again and tried to grasp a fingernail. Hey! Zoo jerked her hand away before Nox could continue. What are you planning? Nox sighed. The forced removal of one of your fingernails would do the trick. I thought surprising you would provide similar nerve and brain feedback like when your hair was pulled. Now, I'm not sure if the result will be reliable. You're definitely not going to yank out a fingernail, yelled Zoo. She jolted back off the platform and began putting her pants and shirt back on. Get me back home, now. You do understand this will mean humanity will be classified as sentient and not sapient, correct? I don't care. If you think ripping out fingernails is a normal test, your federated species can go to hell. Zoo grabbed a piece of equipment that another five sapiens could not lift. Send me back home, or I'll start breaking things. Oh, very well, Nox replied. With a couple of taps on his tablet, Zoo was transported back to her home on Earth. Subject refused completion of examination, Nox said. Very well, came the voice of his captain from shipboard communications. We will classify them as sentient. Harvesting will commence shortly. Over the next two years, the Gulf learned that they should have followed the recommendation from the Frob Overmind. They quickly lost every ship that had been in the Sol system. They were then shocked to find that the humans had somehow not only reverse-engineered all of their technology, they had improved it to the point where no one in the galaxy could stand against them. As the humans drove the last Gull ships back to their home system, more and more humans heard about the testing Zoo had almost been subjected to. All of them were horrified at the prospect and wanted to join the fight against anyone willing to subject a person to that. At the forefront of the fleet, newly promoted Captain Zoo sat in a command chair. Her voice had been getting more and more raged as the war went on. She never told anyone, but she woke screaming from nightmares every night. Even before the Gulf had abducted her for testing, she had had fear of finger and toenail ripping off. The doctors said that her voice likely would never return to normal, and when she spoke, her voice was gravelly and hoarse. How far out are we? she asked in her navigation. She insisted on some familiarity amongst the bridge staff, so his reply was brief. Still ten hours plus, said Chief O'Reilly. 
Well, wait, wait. Everyone knows that you're the person the girls abducted, and everyone knows that they wanted to do testing on you. Were they trying to probe you or something like that old science fiction novels? Zoo looked at him and cleared her throat. No, she said, still getting used to how her voice sounded. I refuse to let them rip my fingernail off to test my limit for pain. He looked at her and grinned. Their war was lost for the want of a hosu nail. Then, of story. 2059. Soul Eugenitus, written by Dizzy Merengu 2107. Apparently, a millennia ago, humanity lost their home system. Maybe lost is the wrong word. You see, humanity, like most species, had quirks. One of their unusual habits, which led to the loss, was their tendency to name colonies or systems after existing settlements. This led to around 400 systems with names varying from the Sol system. Give a few hundred generations of people who have never even been to Terra or learned about it beyond its existence as their cradle world. Their most famous quirk was their penchant for self-destructive tendencies, up to and including genocide against their own species. It was amidst one of these periods of mass violence committed by humans against humans that the realization was made. They didn't know where terror was. This troubled the multiple fractured human governments enough for them to stop fighting for the first time in nearly 400 cycles. It said that you could see the far side of human space clearly for the first time in millennia. Now, I think it may be important to state that many species lose their cradle worlds eventually. Some even give it up by choice, preferring to live in darkness of deep space, safe, far away from the violent tendencies of the stellar titans from which their spark of life was ignited. Eventually, however, those same titans that gave life snuff it out sometimes exploding into great nebulae of gas from which new stars can begin to cycle anew, other times collapsing into a singularity, preventing life from arising there ever again. Humanity, however, had another quirk, theism, the belief in the so-called higher power. Now, they'd moved past prayer to humanoid figures at this point, but had great respect for celestial bodies believing that each planet, moon, star, singularity, and every large object in the galaxy contains power. The exact details of the belief are vague. And indeed, history points to these details being the very cause of the aforementioned genocide. Yes, despite how outrageous two beings of the same species fighting to the death, and worse, in the name of being, that they have no proof of the existence of sounds. Humanity were experts. Regardless of the different beliefs of the individual factions of humanity, there was one system held in reverence above all. The crater world. Sol, Terra, Mars, Venus, Titan, the floating cities of Jupiter and Saturn, the six greatest achievements of mankind, jewels of technology and innovation and human ingenuity, the results of millions of cycles of dedicated terraforming, rejuvenation, civil engineering, and the installation of the first Templum Dyson, a vast network of solar satellites captured the sun's energy to feed it back into itself, sustaining the star, whilst in the process siphoning enough power to power the great city planets in the system. And it had vanished. This is the United Confederacy of Allied Terrans broadcasting into the dark. Sol, are you out there? A single message came from human space one centicycle after the guns had fallen silent. Broadcast with such power across all channels, all frequencies, 
Blinding flashes in varying sequences transmitted in an ancient human language called Morse code. They even used the combined gravitational pull of the entire Terran fleet, activating and deactivating the FTL drives to send the message in binary across the material space-time itself. It was initially believed that they had finally wiped themselves out. But alas, the galaxy stood in awe. Never in the history of Terran interaction with the galaxy at large had humanity united as one. And so far, never have they since. The combined might of the Terran fleet was enough to literally rattle the entire galaxy just by starting their engines. There was no way any race could stand against them. It would be like trying to stop a tsunami with a fence held up by children. Such was the comparable might of their respective forces. The silence, once the broadcast had been complete, was even more deafening than before. As trillions of beings waited, waited for the reply that would either save them or doom them. We are here! Help! The reply came from a complete unexpected place on the far side of the galactic plane from Terran space. A battered and dying soul used some of its remaining energy to cough a short response to the broadcast. Though it was a cough only when compared to the almighty cry it responded to. In seconds, the Terran fleet had disregarded all safe warp procedures and headed at full speed for the source of the transmission. The jump signatures were so large that it was believed to have caused a Nalgi te temporal distortion, which is still there to this day. The Terran fleet tore across space with a complete disregard for anything in their way. Any ships, stations, meteors, or small celestial bodies who did not heed a brief warning of clear 400 kilometers squared around the broadcast flight path were simply swatted aside by the massive weaponry and shields of the great Terran battle carriers. In total, the entire Allied Terran fleet, totaling around 640,000 battlecraft of varying sizes and design, had stretched over 20,000 kilometers as the faster ships drew ahead in the rush to find Sol. 73 planetary bodies were wiped out en route, mostly uninhabited, with many being drone mining operations or small research stations, unable to move out of the way of the fleet in time. Now, this is where the story gets really interesting. See, humanity never developed the technology to transport their own star, or so they say. But at some point during the 400 cycles of warfare, an entire solar system vanished and reappeared on the other side of the galaxy. When the Allied fleet arrived, saw their star was dying. The Ten Plum Dyson had been desecrated and was now spilling the star's lifeblood cleanly into the void. It was barely holding on to its mass. As it expanded, Mercury Sol Castellan, the fortress world of the Sol system, had been consumed already. They had blazed a trail through the stars and found their god wounded. For some time, it was believed that they had all simply died off. They had lost soul and simply given up. How the galaxy must have wished that they had known. For nearly 200 cycles, no one heard from humanity. When they returned, they did so with a vengeance in their hearts. The still unexplained absence of soul had resulted in the loss of trillions of humans, Venus, Mars, and Titan had been abandoned. The great floating cities had fallen to be crushed by the gas giants that hosted them. They took their time, found out who was to blame, and began to build anew. The silence ended with another great transmission, as loud as the first. 
the Yurko I are deemed guilty of the desecration of Terra and her pantheon. Sol Eugenitus demands justice. All who defy the might of Sol will be decimated. The Yaku I were an extragalactic species and had fled an enemy in their home galaxy. The Terrans said that the Yoko I had bargained with their enemies. They hadn't escaped them. They had led them to new territory. They blamed this new threat for the disappearance of their world and the desecration of their temples and gods. All of this broadcast as a data package alongside the original message. The Yarko I didn't even have the chance to put up a fight. Occupying four systems on the edge of galactic space, they fell one after the other. The final system only being able to broadcast a single image, the only image of Sol Eugenitus ever seen by non-Terrans. A single still frame, shot from one of the last battlecruisers as it spans out of control, boring into the gravity well of the local star, showed something that should have been impossible. A star, bigger than the Yarko I system, floating above the orbital plane of the system, surrounded by a great web of satellites. Sol itself had warped into the system, the satellite network of the Templum Dyson spinning rapidly against the rotation of the star. Each satellite appearing to be brimming with weaponry, with the telltale blue flicker of shielding, deflecting the currents of the violent deity they bound. Behind and above the star, the great planetary bodies of Sol arced away into the darkness, looking like an arm of a vengeful sun. And from this arm glittering planets came hell itself, great gouts of plasma, which tore into the Arco eye ships like their shields and bulkheads had been made of tissue paper. The frame showed the cracked red desert of Mars Altum had been peeled back further, revealing the eye of glowing green energy from a colossal laser installation, nearly 1,000 kilometers across. Even Venus Hortus, the meticulous Eden world of humanity, carefully engineered to support life forms from all periods in Terran history, poured forth violence in the forms of great hawking bioengineered monstrosities which were aimed at the Arco Eye planets and unleashed from Terra Mater came the largest ships ever seen, so large they were originally mistaken for small moons the Terrans had hurled at the Yarko Eye. These were surrounded by the great debris field, which was later revealed to be the escort fleet made up of thousands of massive battleships and carriers, each in turn swarmed by a blurry fuzz of fighter craft. The transmission went dead after this image was received, and the Yarko Eye are now extinct. In the aftermath, the galaxy would have united against humanity. Such was their horror at what the Terran's vengeance looked like. But for the Terran's next action, they disappeared. This time, the whole species just vanished. For years, many people assumed that they had wiped themselves out in the final battle. That was until the light from the nearest galactic cluster reached us. Great flashes of light, followed by extinguishing of stars, at the time, the distance made it impossible to tell what was happening. Near 1,000 cycles had passed since humanity had vanished, and they had been almost forgotten. Even if it was the humans, the stories must have been exaggerated. It would take millions of cycles and would be practically impossible to invade and destroy an entire galaxy. We were safe. The Zaniots had abandoned our galaxy in search of those who would desecrate their gods. 
and they would die out in the depths of space. Or so the story goes. Twelve hours ago, the last star in the galaxy of Andromeda was extinguished. The entire galaxy had been reduced to an entropic state. It has been 3,400 years since the first star flashed out of existence. Nine hours ago, we picked up a massive gravitational signal moving towards us at incredible speed, along with the following transmission. The heathens are burned! Their gods consumed! Sol Eugenitus stands undefeated by Ternitas in Terra Mater! Humanity is coming home. End of story. 2060. Story number one. Humans on Earth. Written by Catfish21SM. My fellow members of the galactic community. A few months ago a new report came that shook the entire galaxy to its core. The humans. Since they had entered the galactic stage everyone had been quite worried. The humans are completely unpredictable. The fact that they are both predators and herbivores doesn't help anything. You never know what a human might be thinking. Oftentimes their thought patterns are completely illogical. Which is why it is so terrifying how quickly they are able to adapt and advance their technology. When they entered the galactic stage, when they discovered FTL, they weren't even a type 1 civilization yet. It's honestly amazing that they didn't destroy their home world with their experiments. But all of that is besides the point. Humans progressed far too quickly. In only a few years, they basically skipped from a pre-tier 1 civilization to a full-fledged tier 2 civilization. If the humans ever wanted to go to war, it would take the entire galactic union just to hold them off. We're talking about hundreds of species just to fend them off. Their wartime strategies are chaotic and messy, but their unpredictability is what makes them so powerful. Their tech is unpredictable too. You don't go into battle against a laser ray, you go into battle against solid light. How they made light solid is beyond me, or anyone else for that matter, but they solidified light. So you can imagine how the Galactic Union felt when they'd received information about the humans' latest secret project. The humans were building a massive supercomputer. Well, saying that it's massive is probably an understatement. They had to literally take apart multiple entire star systems just to get the materials to build it. The core of the computer is a Dyson Sphere. It's not surprising that the humans have the tech to do such a thing. But what is surprising is that they built it in complete secret. It was once thought that the humans had evolved the inability to keep secrets because they loved to brag about their newest, biggest projects that they are coming out with. We learned the hard way, though, that the humans don't like to talk about their war machines. You heard me right, war machines. I'm not talking about simple cruisers or carriers either. No, the Yokchevik thought that the humans would be easy targets because they could not keep a secret to save their lives. When their latest manufacturing world was turned into a new asteroid ring, only three days after war was declared, they learned that humans can in fact keep secrets. We fear humans, which is why the entire Galactic Union joins together in secret to buy out high-tech level human spies and keep us informed about their human secrets. This specific secret, though, came too late. The humans have already completed their supercomputer. What they are planning to use it for is unknown to us at this time. 
This secret galactic union meeting is being held before a scheduled meeting in three days to determine if we should confront the humans about their new project. Doing so would reveal our spies. But is this actually something that we can actively ignore? Sir, sir, uh, I have something to report. Can it wait? The Galactic Union is in session. We are currently discussing topics that could decide the fate of the galaxy going forward. Oh, uh, sorry, sir. I'll leave. Wait, if it's important enough to interrupt a meeting of the Galactic Union, then it can't be something small. What is it? I just got a little overexcited at the human's latest announcement. I'm, I'm terribly sorry. I, I can wait until after the meeting. I'm sorry, I I'll leave. Wait, the humans made an announcement. Not unusual, but I'm curious what it is. Ah, uh, it's re really nothing. Uh, they announced their newest VR MMORPG. Is that all? What's so special to have to interrupt the meeting of a galactic union for it? They released a new game all the time. Oh, uh... Like I said, it's not really a big of a deal. It's just supposed to be super realistic. Using self-aware AI for the NPCs and containing multiple entire self-contained universes. Uh, but the best part is that the highest subscription levels get their own servers where they can do whatever they want. It's amazing. It's, it's going to revolutionize the entire gaming industry. Huh. The computing power needed to simulate such a thing, especially considering that it probably uses the newest Neuralink devices to increase realism, would be incomprehensible. How are they powering such a thing? Ah, uh, wait, don't tell me. That's the coolest part, sir. They built this massive supercomputer powered by a Dyson Sphere at its core. The whole thing is over three solar system masses. It's so big that the star in the center is held in place by a gravity of the device itself. Well, I think that ends our meeting for today. The Galactic Union is dismissed. Uh, by the way, what's the release date of this new game? Uh, I want to make sure that I uh, get a copy. End of story. Story number two. Humans never come back. Written by Dark Prince 010. Begin log. It began as a mistranslation. Also, the humans had thought. In the early years following establishment of communications between our species, one area quickly noticed and fixated on by the human historians was how complete and accurate our historical records were. Despite having comparable lifespans and quality of recording tools and methods during the development of our own civilization. The word that was mentioned again and again was witnessed, with an improbable number of accounts written from first-hand perspective rather than retrospectively. Understandably, it was chalked up to a lexicographical oddity, a misunderstanding of perspectives or similar error in our communications. There was no error and so the humans first learned of the Lodestar Initiative. Nearly a century before, our top minds had developed a method of rendering a participant out of phase with our material universe, rendering them imperceptible and intangible. Simultaneously, our astronomers had finished research on a nearby black hole, and a unity was discovered amongst the two projects. After some trial and error, a craft and volunteers were sent to the black hole, protected from the ravages of its presence, thanks to the phasing, but allowing it to pull and propel them. The speed was sufficient to slingshot them through time rather than just mere space, and into lazy orbit around our planet some hundreds of years previously. 
It was through these unseen visitors that we had mapped out our history, recorded it in excruciating detail, discovered hidden intricacies that had been lost to time and the decay of records. It was during this first presentation that one of the initial humans researchers, Dr. Isaac Schultz, asked about defacing World Planet Side, and seemed surprised to learn that we had indeed experimented with that as well. However, we had found it to be dangerous in the extreme, with a quintet of phase scribes lost before we had better idea of what we were dealing with. No matter how small the thing, experiments found a manifestation and modification could not pass unnoticed, with every change causing ripples in subsequent time. A gem flower plucked from a remote meadow, a single entry changed in a remote but disused schoolhouse record. A pinch of sand moved from one crimson beach to another. In these, the development of future centuries or millennia was changed enough that our physicists estimated that it resulted in a timeline splitting and the subsequent loss of the individual making the change. Something as seemingly minor as providing a scrap of food to the hungry could ripple into unknown temporal turbulences. It was up to the philosophers to argue over of those unfortunate meddlers were destroyed outright by paradox, or if they had diverged enough from our timeline, that the future they returned to would not be their own. But regardless, they were lost forever. So we were surprised that, in the wake of these dire warnings, Dr. Schultz immediately volunteered to help humans participate in the Lodestar Initiative. Thanks to the diligent work of him and hundreds of others, the delicate calculations and fluctuations to adjust to human physiology and to target Earth instead of our home planet were overcome in just under a decade. Eight years to the day after volunteering, Dr. Schultz stepped aboard his craft, took off towards the month-long trip to the black hole, and never returned. Months became years, but he was gone. However... In the wake of the doctor's disappearance, we were again surprised by a steady influx of human volunteers to continue in his footsteps and help continue the human participation in the initiative. Despite this optimism, we were met with a shocking failure as the second wave began making their voyages. No humans ever came back. At first we assumed technological failure, and despite our hesitations, the renewed response from the humans that we were working with was to continue sending out ships as the waves of volunteers increased by leaps and bounds. After thorough examination failed to turn up any physical problems, we consulted a cadre of psychologists that had begun to study humans to better understand this new species. It was there that we thought that we had the breakthrough. The humans were not intentionally abandoning the project. We had screening tests in place to ensure commitment to the project and its aims. However, when we sent them back to observe pivotal events, such as the beginning of wars or the deaths of influential leaders, the psychologists warned that the temptation to interfere was too great. The parameters were changed, scopes realigned, missions redirected to remote locations absent of major historical events that might sway a mind to action. The next wave of volunteers were sent out. No humans ever came back. This time we consulted with human psychologists and learned that our efforts were likely futile. It was a quirk of human nature that was preventing their return. You see, humans cannot stand idly by while others are in pain, in danger, in despair. Humans provide aid by reflex, unlike our kind. 
and will often seek out the wrong to correct, even if it puts them in peril. To ask a human to stay their hand from compassion is like asking them to cease breathing. Perhaps the volunteer explorer acted to prevent a genocide, stop a war, avert a famine. Or perhaps they provided a more meal for a night, showed love to an unloved child, saved an unlucky passerby from a premature end. They could not have had the knowledge that the person they were helping would live to do anything of historical note, that the selfless act that they were performing would ever have an impact on history. And yet, through their absence, we feel the everlasting consequence of their small kindness. We can never know with any certainty what changes have been made, or how many multiverses have been splintered off by this altruism. It seems that no matter where, no matter when, humans will ensure that others have a future, even if it means they sacrifice their own. As I see the faces of each new human volunteer, warn them of the consequences of any intervention, I would like the record to show that two things are assured. Humans will never come back, and I never once seen them regret it. End log. End of story. 2061. Of Human Gods, written by You Sure I'm Not a Robot. Who's the new guy? asked the silver-helmed god of war. The many-tentacled monstrosity shrugged an action that took quite some time and probably sank many ships. It's the human god. Normally we wouldn't let such a little species in, but he arrived with something he calls ambrosia. Try it, it's excellent. Another heavily carapace god fell backwards from the bar, his shell making a resounding bell ring as he landed. The god of war sniggered. I told him to water it down. The human god will sort it out. Here's a knack for it. The strangely garbed barman took a look over the bar and cursed. His words became solid and flooded to the fallen god currently messing up his floor. I told him he was cut off for the next century. He looked up accusingly. Who's been feeding the sad bastard my beer? He's not ready for it. He summoned a selection of odd flying children to whisk the fallen god to his rest. I'm not his fecking keeper. Any plagues, wars, or disasters that happen to his people are on you guys. He looked at the table the creature had dragged himself away from, and a magnified shade of green raised his glass apologetically. We will protect his world, my apologies, deity of humans. I find my omnipotence is a little strained tonight. Tell me your tale. The human god was as vain as anyone else than such a title. Well, uh, perhaps an introduction would be useful. My people are new to the greater universe, much as I tried to inspire them to travel in the early days. In the end, frankly, I gave up. Any new lands they found, they trashed. A lot of my finest work went up in flames. So, I gave up. They stopped believing. I kept my nose out of their affairs. I considered myself retired. Then I turned up on your bloody mountainside, and I found out that it's full of gods, demons, and indescribable horrors from the odd dimensions. He pulled out a bottle from below the bar and a glass from thin air. So I thought I'd better make myself useful. How did none of you come up with the people that understand brewing? Mine pray when they are making it. They pray while they are drinking it, and they pray when they run out of it. 
They don't even need to use my name. They just send out general complaints to the universe, and it turns up in my inbox. Some of the other guards began getting offended by the human's tone. A particular shade of blue and at least two aggressive forms of seaweed objected. You are not a guard of your people. They have discarded you. We have a place for such as you. The strange shape of the human god seemed to shift a little. It became thinner and a cowl formed around it. Ah, yes, your graveyard. I took a long look when I arrived. House guards, wisps of history and the odd poor bastard that lost his entire planet. I'm not ready for that just yet. My people believe but don't worship. My people pray when the universe pisses them off and not before or after. They regard me as a complaints department with IT support. They just register complaints and I fix what I can. The human god began pouring again and seemed to consider the conversation over. The god of war didn't seem to think so. So a cowardly and forgotten god from an insignificant people. It is well that you are allowed here to serve us. At least your petty purpose and trite gifts have some use for us at the moment. I believe I have some unpleasant tasks you may undertake for my people. They are warriors and have little time for the subtleties of plumbing. The human god seemed to change and sigh, becoming something else. Another god of war. You do realize that everyone has a dozen or more? Have you ever heard of arm wrestling? One limb against another, you lose. If I can force your offered limb to the table or floor, the human god had adjusted the rules to accommodate the tentacles. Best of three, five if the referee asks for it. Full access to the faith of your people. The Xeno god laughed loud and hard. Hey, people hold empires. They battle in my name and sacrifice my enemy to my altars. Their faith is cast in stone. They are a warrior people, and I will take your challenge, petty god. The human god finished his drink. Well, uh, my people don't have warriors, but now we need to set the stakes. If I win, you'll build a temple for me in your poorer city and sort out the plumbing. What do you want from me? The god of war sneered. I have no need of anything from you. But you shall raise a temple to me as their god of war in their greatest city. And then I will take the limb you offer and hang it in the servants' quarters as a warning. The flickered crowd in the room seemed to come to focus. To the surprise of many, one of the old gods, long since exiled to the deepest dark, seemed to focus and sat itself in a seat bereft of hope or life. Several small gods ran screaming from the room, but the human god just gave the infernal creature a nod and sent over a drink. Cool! And all nicely agreed. Let me finish serving all the audience and off we go. The human god moved quickly to supply to his new customers as they settled down for the show. Once that was done, he came out from behind the bar and sat at the table of the god of war. So, um, I'll take the weird green guy as a referee. You choose one now. The shade of green raised its drink in agreement. A chance to make up for his unfortunate friend. The god of war pointed to one of the angry seaweed gods. Them! The human god nodded. Well, I'm nominating the old one as the casting vote, if it's willing. The creature stared. You dare! The human laughed. <laughs> dare! 
I insist. It would be rude to ignore such a guest, and I have a barter on it. I don't want to piss him off and lose all my guests. Also, I believe that you, as the challenger, get to invite him. Be nice. He'll break more than a limb if you anger him. Before the God of War had a chance to move, the Old One sent his agreement and seemed to be laughing. Some of the cleverer gods ran from the room, knowing that the old god's laughter was an insanity in itself. They laughed at the birth of a world, or the death of a child, and it drove those who heard it mad. The human god put his elbow firmly on the table and put his left hand behind him. Okay, access your faithful in ten. He nodded at the shade of green. Count it down. Local time, please. You guys never seem to get a grip on that. The world got slightly greener as the count was called. The god of war opened his mind to his people, battling on thousands of planets. Every warrior's cry a prayer. Every victory a benison in his name. He let that strength flow into his arm and joined it with the resolute anger of his people. There will be victory and sacrifice. An alloy of victory. He watched the human god dredge up his power as its arm wavered on the table. He began changing color, twisting as its strange followers poured their godless faith into their pathetic god. It grew harder, scales of metal and frost forming around his opponent's arm. The human god smiled. They care little for gods or kings, but they love their machines and space. A moment later, it had become a gray thing of steel and shielding fields, powerful pulses of energy, torn from the math of the universe, rippling from the human god and blasting into the warrior. They also know war. I'm their god, out of pity. I watch them cry while they burn their own homes, and I carry their dead to safety and peace, because they demand it of me. They do not need another god of war. I am their god of battlefield. Trenches and truces, born on a Christmas day, and from their world to peace. He slammed the god of war's arm through the table, shattering both and letting the god of war sprawl on the floor. He leaned down. And I think you should drink somewhere else and learn some fecking plumbing. The human god looked at the referees, all of which were standing back, as if the old one had just farted. All good here. This fella just needs a timeout. I've got a new brew to show you if you're interested. It's from one of my dampest people, and they learn how to build fire in their stomach. He raised his arm, now losing the metal covering, and suddenly held a large bottle of whiskey. This one is on me. As he drew in the evening, only two remained. The human god poured out another bottle as the old one seemed to relax. Small gods fight like children. You are not a small god. You are a baby old one. I was wisest to fight you. The human god laughed at that. <laughs> really? Because you lost. Why the feck were you standing guard over graveyard of gods anyway? Small gods are my children. You are on a battlefield. You always win. It is your calling. I guard and weep for the small gods because they were mine. I was the wisest because I fought you first, little god. I did not fall. Once you have forgotten mercy and become an old one, then all gods will fall. The human god seemed to think about that for a while. Aye, as we should. Cheers. 
End of story. 2062. Story number one. And we are the honorless scums that are left. Written by Silver 200061. As Rajatar awakened from his unconsciousness, the smell of wet grass and mud registered in his senses first. Then he realized his face was laying against the damp ground, hands tied behind his back. Confusion hit Rajatar as he attempted to lift himself from the floor. His body ached from both prolonged laying in an uncomfortable posture and a battle wound. His mind is clouded as his period of unconsciousness. He could hear voices and activity around, but the language was oddly familiar but incomprehensible. Light stang as he opened his eyes. His retina slowly adjusted, then begins to take in the environment around him. This is a human camp. As realization sets in, Rajatar attempted to free himself from whatever bound his hands and tried to stand up, but was rudely interrupted by sharp pain at the back of his head, caused by some hard object smacking into it. His legs gave out, and he kneeled on the ground again, following by a growling human voice. Stay put, you giant dog. Pain stimulated his cell mind, and memories began to fade back in bits and pieces. The battle, the charge, the hail of projectiles, the boomsticks, that damned tin man that bested him. He could hear angry yet familiar voices swearing in Sidisian, and some calling for his name and concern from his left. He resisted the pain and forced his head to turn. It was Charge and Mali, a rider of his war host, and few others of it were here as well, and some from the other hosts too, all tied up and forced to this shameful sight by the humans, the Sylvanians. What happened? Rajatar asked, though his ego prevented him from fully comprehending his defeat and capture. Rajatar still wanted to fully understand the situation. The low-life mudboard tricked us. They concealed in a ditch in front of their boomstick sorcerers. Our war beasts were slain between our legs, and we were forced to fight on foot. Then came the treacherous tin men, the knights. My God knows what dark magic day. With reluctance, Chinmali spit out the words with spite. They defeated us. Nacorcox is killed, and the rest of the host retreated. The master of a hundred hosts is killed. How? Rajatar was shocked. The honored Korkox is a veteran warrior with years of experience in battle. Undefeated through numerous campaigns, he led. He was shot dead by a boom barrel. Many tried to rally the hosts. George and Molly said with bitterness on his tongue. Before Rajatar could inquire more, a tin man, but not quite one, approached. He lacked the elegant footing of one, and his armor did not cover his body fully, as his shin and feet were exposed, nor was it ornated as a proper tin man. Rajatar recalled human captors called them caressias. Still, he still was able to identify the suit as a high-ranking personnel in the Sylvanian military. He watched as this Karassia officer approached the soldiers that were guarding them and began to exchange conversation. Rajatar can't quite make out their expression, nor could he understand the human tongue. He would not lower himself to learn such a foul language.
each of the mudborns. After a few words, the Savanian officer came closer to the captured giants. Though on their knees, the Sedisians were still around the same height as an adult human male. The officer stared sharply at the first prisoner of the line, Chartok of the Golden Axe Warhurst. Then he pulled out his wheel-lock pistol on his belt and shot through Chartok's head. Rajitar and the others' roars came as soon as the ring of the gunshot echoed around the camp. Some tried to raise up, attempting to pounce on the officers and tear into his throat with their teeth if necessary, but was either held down by a few human soldiers or received the same beating as Rajatar did. Where is the honor of killing a defenseless opponent, Mudborn? Rajatar growled. I demand you release me and conduct a just fight. The human Karasia officer stopped cocking his other wheel-lock pistol, his head snapped towards Rajitar, then surprised all present Sedisian prisoners as he spoke fluent, though heavily accented Sedisian. Honor! His puzzled tune began to degrade into laughter, then into rage. Honor! How dare you speak of honor! The human officer growled. He stepped closer at a quick pace and furiously reached out and seized Rajitar's hair and dragged him deeper inside the camp towards the tents of the wounded and the dead. The pain forced Rajatar to move along, half-dragged and half-scrambling, his rage temporarily halted by the sudden shock and pain. Trust Raul Camp, followers were attending to the wounded when they were interrupted by the noise and action. Some started peeking out to see the scene outside. When they reached the tents, the Caressia officer released the shouting and swearing Rajatar. Then, a strong punch in the face shut him up again. He placed a firm grip on Rajtar's head and forced him to face the directions of the tents. More bystanders and camp followers wandered out to see what was going on. Most a woman of various ages. Some grasped as they saw the Sedisian giant, and some began to whisper amongst themselves, attempting to understand the situation. You see these women, giant? They lost... Loved ones, their family, their husband, their children, friends, acquaintances, due to your raids. Not soldiers, not warriors, but defenseless people. Carpenters, smiths, scholars, fishermen, and farmers. We never wanted war, but you brought this upon yourself. The sedition warrior looked around. He could see the rage in their eyes, the hatred so deep as if knives cutting at him. You dare speak of honor when you commit atrocities upon us? Your hypocrisy disgusts me. There was no honor in this for us. You never saw us as individuals, living beings, or equals, but prey and challenges to your war game. Now you demand honor from us. Rajitar wanted to argue back, to throw insults and justify his actions. But at this moment, he didn't know what to say. The words choked at his throat, as if those questions were tearing his logical mind a bit by bit. Before he could come up with a response, the human officer let go of Rajatar's head and walked in front so that he could face the Sedisian giant face to face again. Then he spoke again. You asked where is our honor? Our honorable ones are dead. They died in Randburg, Tervinsky, Gernberg, and Valentia, Stentia, Norland's Gate, and... At Scarletta Rocker, the human slowly cocked the wheel-lock pistol, and a clean click resonated through Rajtar's ears. And we are the honorless scum 
that is left. Then a trigger was pulled. End of story. Story number two. Explaining FTL to the galactic community. Written by AI Whisper. The human representative sighed and rubbed his temples after being interrupted yet again. This time by race sitting in the front row. This just makes no sense. The only proper method of FTL is to use the gate system and the wormholes within them. He was currently at the Galactic Conference, sharing tech with other races expanding galactic knowledge. His lecture was covering the various FTL systems that humanity had used and trying to explain them to the rest of the galactic community that they had just joined last year. Yes, I understand that's how the GC has done things for centuries. And it is why I'm trying to explain how humanity managed to reach other systems without a gate network. But that is not possible. Not without a stable wormhole contained by a gate and powered by a local star. Another creature in the crowd said. And yet we somehow did it. He said, starting to lose his cool since they was wasting his precious lecture time. A thought then entered his mind. He decided to give up on explaining the physics or other technical aspects to these supposed scientists, and instead pulled up the lecture he used for high school freshmen when he visited them. Okay, the speaker said. I'm going to start over from scratch with a simpler explanation for your more common types of FTL drive. The Alcabiri drive. Please do not interrupt and keep an open mind as my time here is limited, and you can ask me questions directly at the end. He took a breath. Imagine an airtight cube-shaped room. In this room, there is nothing but you, a rope connecting two walls, and a breathable atmosphere. He paused to let them all picture as he's also pulled up the diagram of the room. You are the ship. The walls represent your starting and ending point. The rope is local space. And the atmosphere is the rest of the universe. Now... Your goal is to cross the room along the rope, going from wall A to wall B as fast as possible. At first, all you can do is walk the length of the rope from wall to wall. This, he played a short video, is how normal space travel works. You are limited to how fast your feet move. You can compare this to engines that expel propellant, ions, etc. You can never walk faster than light as the universal rule and you must always take 100 strides of distance upon the floor, no matter your stride length, to go from wall A to wall B. He moved on to the next video. Now, picture the same room, but this time the walls connected to the rope can also move both forward and backward. The walls also want to spread apart thanks to the air pressure in the room, but the rope keeps them in place even if they are very tight and slightly stretching. You can pull on the rope, and now instead of your feet moving, the walls move to you. But you still must pull the rope 100 strides length to reach your goal. Yes, you're still achieving your goal of touching wall A, then wall B, but the length of rope, the air pressure, the time it took, everything else about the room does not change. So you still can't go faster than light. He let the video of a man tugging on a rope without moving his feet play and he could see the audience agreeing along. Finally, we have our room with one extra item, our Alcabiri drive. He changed the video to the same room, but this time a carbon box labeled Alcabiri drive was attached to the rope with the figure grabbing at it instead of the rope. 
Now there is an extra tool at your disposal. Not only can you walk the floor or pull the rope, but the machine removes the 100-stride rule by compressing the length of rope in the front and stretching it behind itself at the same time. This represents the compression of space that it can achieve. The video played, and the creature now only took 50 strides, while the machine compressed and expanded the rope 50 times. The goal was achieved twice as fast, but the cost of needing to power the machine to alter the rope. The overall volume of air did not change in the room since the walls remained the same distance apart, but, and you would still never go faster than light, yet the task was much faster. The room was silent, so he continued. The video now switched to an animated human ship. How ships do much the same thing, but on a much larger scale, and in three dimensions. They compress the space in front of themselves via a bubble, then expand it behind them. This allows it to travel without breaking the speed limit locally, as they themselves are not moving faster than light. It is space that is compressing and expanding in a wave that the ship rides. To the outside observer, the ship is moving faster than light, yet it is not. This also does not affect the rest of space since the overall volume of the empty space is unchanged outside of the generated bubble. The crowd sat stunned at the explanation. Some had eyes so wide it was as if they had just given them a meaning of life, others just murmuring that he was insane. Either way, he was pleased with the lecture. And that was just the Alcabiri drive. Wait until they hear about warp drives, slipstream drives, or portable wormhole drives. End of story. 2063. Story number one. The only time a human made sense. Written by Farm Witch 4275. The entire galaxy found humans to be the oddest, strangest, most peculiar creatures in the universe. Nothing they ever said or did made any sense, ever. I recalled all of the things these crazy apes did. I remember the times during one of their wars a fractious species, the likes of which we had never seen much of before. They had fully told the rest of the galaxy that they intended to wage and small skirmish, and that they were dead serious about nobody interfering, promising retaliation. They were slugging away in a backwater system, when out of the blue a small civilian cargo ship burst into the battle from hyperspace. It cried out for emergency support. The human fleets in that battle, well known to be absolute mortal enemies, mind you, suddenly disengaged, then flew side by side to go help the crippled ship. After helping said ship and paying for their ship to be shackled and towed to a dry dock for repairs, the human fleet simply restarted their war music and resumed shooting each other. The other humans outside of the conflict simply laughed at it, and the rest of the galaxy spent the next few months with the phrase defect being the only thing ever said. Another scenario is when a human marine, one of humanity's warrior cast, single-handedly left an entire Sarantus infantry division to charge the Marangantus battle line. The crazy part was that it actually worked. Apparently, he was bored of being barked at by his sergeants. The Sarantus and the Marangantus were two subsets of the same species, sharing a fractional line across two separate gene lines and had come to blows in a mining dispute that had lasted centuries. If you want a human analogy to this, think of the Democrats and the Republicans, and the long-standing war. Both the same country, both the same kind of silly. 
They were highly honor-bound traditionalists, species that valued discipline and duty above all else. They held significant sway over the futures of the galactic body's politic, but could before the life of them never settle any disputes, mostly using tactics and weapons that humans found to be archaic and suicidal. Though few casualties were ever reported in their skirmishes, battles between them would last hours, skirmishes would be months in between, and it would all be decided during the battles. Both sides held the equivalent of laser muskets and would fire a single shot at one another. They would then break the formation and fight each other on a single combat until there was a victor. The humans apparently had long since dispensed with this practice, and from what I hear, actually had to stop themselves from laughing upon hearing it. There was one such battle, a human, not a marine per se, but rather a star pilot who crashed on the planet in exchange for repairing his ship, was drafted to service. The human marine apparently tired of the formation line and long-windedness of his commanding officer that he broke ranks, charged the Marangantus main battle line, and somehow made it to the end. He never fired a shot. Instead, he climbed up into the trenches and pounced on the enemy commander. He flipped open his helmet and screamed at the top of his lung, Get me out of here! In the commander's face, then charged back to the friendly lines. The sheer absurdity of the circumstances apparently traumatized the commander to such an extent that he was later found wearing a bedsheet as a ceremonial robe, attempting to court-martial a snack cake for insubordination. The battle was concluded, and both sides saw to it that within a few days the human had his ship repaired and off the planet. The commander apparently recovered from his psychosis, but never managed to get over his hatred of a particular brand of snack cake attempting to court-martial a sedation upon ever seeing one. Other scenarios, like humans drinking or eating things that they knew were bad for them, while most species avoided poisons, the humans consumed it for fun. Cigarettes, as I know them, were an extreme toxin to most others, whereas humans used them for a mild sedative. Humans would withstand a bullet wound or a plasma bolt and keep fighting without ever really even knowing that they were shot and only bothered to notice the wound or react to it when someone either told them about it or when the battle was over. We never understood humans. They were so all peculiar. Then one day, a human did something that actually made sense. Ordinary day in the hand, looking over a refinery control panel to check temperatures. My name is Wag, just Wag. Most other species can't be bothered or outright failed to an offensive degree to pronounce our names. So, most others simply say the first part of them and call it a day. Our species are crab humanoids, roughly the size of an earth horse. And, I should know, I had the unfortunate pleasure of actually meeting one of said beast in person. It did not go well. I sat quietly in my control panel at my place of work, an alloy refinery blissfully unaware of what was about to transpire. A human doing something that actually made sense. Marcus then barged in the door holding the datapad. A human, even though he was about a foot shorter than I was, I've yet to beat him in close combat. Just like all humans, Marcus was about average for a human. Five foot nine, brown tuft of hair on his head and a smaller tuft in his upper lip skin that looked like it had been roasted in an oven, like a fast icosan kapoor in mustaragonic utuyata. Good morning to you, he barked happily and slapped a datapad on my desk. Good morning, Marcus, you seem somewhat delighted. A nice talk on him, the other looking at my job. 
Indeed I am. Got the reports from the last quota. We are reformed, which means that we will get a paycheck bonuses this month. See? He pointed excitedly at the datapad he had. Oh, excellent. I can visit my clutch back home early this year. I clicked my mandibles in joy and quickly disabled my work for a short break so that we could chat. Yep. Got a pub crawl plan for the weekend with the boys in janitorial. Interested? He asked. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Undutably. I clacked my claws in happiness. Oh, uh, by the way, here. He handed me another datapad, somewhat sinister grin in his face. What is this? It's a petition. It's been doing the rounds lately, and it's already got six billion signatures. Again, with that sinister smile. I read it. Petition for gww.change.universe forward slash reclass.net. Reclassification of species. Reclassification of species is an absolute necessity for most creatures as they slowly gain intellect and technology. Or we simply discover a new thing about them. It is therefore we come to the following conclusion and ask changes be made to reflect this. We hereby petition that the creature known as politicians be reclassified as a separate species. The reason for this is that politicians, bearing some extremely rare and notable examples, are always a similar demeanor, attitude and activity regardless of their origins. Pompousness, a lack of consideration, a certain quality of elitism and holier-than-thou thought process. And as such, all politicians act in the same way. Like arseholes. Every politician seems to operate under the same hive mind of the concept of power and its addictive nature. And even the most nicest and kindest of individuals can fall prey to this concept and become a complete arsehole seeming overnight, with few exceptions. Each politician seems to be under the same delusion of power saturating grandeur on achieving a seat of power. Therefore, this petition hereby exists to reclassify any and all politicians as their own species in order to properly open their behavior to scrutiny and necessary ridicule. We, the people. I looked up at him. He simply smiled down at me. I signed the document and retrieved the datapad. Both of us looked at each other for a bit, then burst into a fit of hysterical laughter. After a while, we said goodbyes and would likely meet up later for drinks after work. That right there was the only time a human did anything that actually made sense. Well, not the only time actually, but that, for me at least, was the best one. End of story. Story number two, with bated breath, written by Ori L117. One bomb, that's all it took. One bomb and a gun was pointed at the head of the galaxy. It had been a test observed by all officials, admirals, generals. Any person of importance in that empire was there. Some barren world in some backwater corner of the empire was selected. A team of 15 soldiers landed on the surface of the barren world, and between four of them was the bomb, a sleek black case with four metallic handles, large and cumbersome. The point of the test was to see the destructive potential was there. The ergonomics would come later. Fifteen were selected, each a specialist in explosives. If even the smallest hitch occurred, those generals and admirals needed to be sure that it was resolved on site. They placed the case on the ground, carefully, very carefully. One of the soldiers crouched next to it, pressed a few buttons on the small panel, and then very quickly retreated to their ship and left the surface. They had 45 minutes to get out of dodge. Plenty of time, provided nothing goes wrong. Nothing went wrong. 
Those officials sat in the flagship and their navy, a large window looking down at the world, sipping champagne and enjoying the calm music from a live band. They talked and talked and talked about budgets, strategies, and voting habits. A voice rang out over the intercom of the ship. Kilimanjaro test fire set to detonate in one minute. Those same officials put down their glasses and gathered around the window, still talking. T-10, that man on the intercom called out, counting down. The officials hushed themselves. Ten seconds went by. There was no sound in space, but those in the ship could swear they heard the planet groan. The spot in which the bomb was placed deformed inwards as it was caving in on itself before the opposite side of the planet spat out fragments of its crust. The same then occurred on the other original side of that world. The other two sides of the world were now separated by fragmenting, splitting apart. A blight of pearls erupted, and that observation deck. They were pleased. The galaxy was horrified. They'd all heard this upstart race was working up something like this. It took them 70 years to make this. Their ships were primitive. This system's an inefficient mess. But this, this was a threat. Humanity had just assured its eternal independence. That bomb said, Threaten us, threaten our homes, our lives, our family, and we will rip your world from under your feet. What was worst? It took them 70 years to destroy a world. How long until the supernova of a star? How long until that gun at the head of the galaxy pointed at the universe? How long until they threatened the entirety of existence? A thousand years? A hundred? That brings us to the current state of galactic politics. The United Galactic Council is outraged that they would make something like this. Sadly for them, their own rules forbade them from inviting humanity to this council, and so the humans were not beholden to their laws. Humanity just exposed the flaw in the system. Humanity didn't care. They weren't in the system. They didn't matter to them. They had the gun, and their history proved that they were more than willing to pull the void damned trigger. End of story. 2064. Story number one. The Art to End a War. Written by Jasha E. The war between the Empire and the humans had raged for far too long. The Empire, used to swiftly crushing any resistance with overwhelming force, was downright annoyed by the humans' insistence to keep fighting. Granted, they managed to destroy a fleet or two, but the Empire knew they would break like so many before them. The Empire was eternal. Resistance was temporary. It took several years, but finally the humans sent a massive, requesting to negotiate a surrender. That took them this long to see the futility of their efforts would mean that they wouldn't be allowed space-bearing technology for several generations. Most of their worlds claimed for settlement or mining by the Empire. To their credit, they showed the humility befitting their position. Only three diplomats would be sent to the Empire's crowned world, dressed in traditional human garb of mourning and atonement, which, as the negotiators gleefully noted, included to cover their heads in ash. As a small human ship finally arrived at the crowned world spaceport, it was informed that, regrettably, there was simply no room to dock at the diplomats' terminal. They would need to dock in this commercial district. The Empire was not a graceful winner, and would take every opportunity to inflict indignities to those that were stupid enough to resist its eternal reign. What is that? 
The soldier pointed to a small, weirdly elongated creature one of the humans was carrying. A companion animal from our homeworld, intended to amuse the Eternal Majesty and aid in negotiations. The soldier displayed mirth. If these primitives wanted to wager their species' future on this being ability to do little tricks, so be it. Very well then, follow me. The path their procession took was, by no means, the shortest one. It went through the port, giving the Empire citizens ample time to make a spectacle out of the humans coming to surrender. The soldiers leading them then made a path through the military wing of the port, parading the human diplomats like he personally captured them, and making sure that they saw the unbroken light of the Empire, should they even think about backtracking on the surrender. It took the better part of a day before the dignitaries were even brought to the planet's surface and shown to their quarters at the outskirts of the palace. Quarters might have been a euphemistic, cells might have been more fitting a description. There they waited, of course. The Eternal Majesty was very busy, and meeting a bunch of backwater diplomats was not high priority. Almost two full days passed before they were escorted from their quarters to the palace proper. Long stretches of walking under the burning sun, past rows and rows of honor guard soldiers, past monuments enshrining the Empire's many victories, some of them decorated with the remains of the losing parties. Their guide liked to point those out. More waiting amidst the honor guards before they were finally shown to the throne room. The humans walked as close to the throne as they were permitted, before falling to their knees and touching the ground with their ash-covered heads. Well... For primitives, they did perform well in regards to palace protocol. Even the odd companion animal had been trained to lay down. You may speak, a dignitary informed them. They were not worthy to be addressed by the Eternal Majesty. Thank you for granting us this audience with your Eternal Majesty. We are here today to bring an end to the war between your Grand Empire and ourselves, and to negotiate a satisfactory surrender. I would like to begin the negotiation by telling your majesty about my species' history and why we brought this animal along. Do you believe your history or your pet will move us to sanction you any less? I am certain your majesty will find my words helpful in determining the conditions of the surrender. There was a near imperceptible gesture on the throne. Tell your story, human. Thank you. Your majesty, when our species was young, Long before we discovered metalworking, there was a fierce predatory species with which we had to contend. Wolves, they were called. Odin here, he pointed at a small creature beside him, is one of their descendants. Through centuries we managed to make it the fierce predator, our companion, a friend, often integrated into human families. Do you suggest we keep humans as pets? The contempt dripped from the dignitary's words. Oh no, your majesty, I have not been clear. As your majesty will have doubtlessly observed, Odin here does not exactly look like a dangerous predator. He is part of a subspecies that has many unfettering names today, like Sausage Dog, based on his shape. But originally their name was Dashunt, named after the burrowing critter that they were bred to hunt. You see, these critters made deep, complicated burrows much too small for the humans to follow. So we bred dogs that were small, aggressive and stubborn enough to run into the dark to face an animal twice their size. We are aware of humanity's aggressive tendencies and stubbornness. Do you suggest humans become the Empire's hounds? No, Your Majesty. I'm saying 
When my species was huddled around fires, wearing furs and using stone tools, we already created bioweapons. Thank you for the extended tour through your spaceport's many facilities and this audience. I believe we are now ready to negotiate your surrender. End of story. Story number two. Human Child Logic. Written by Farm Witch 4275. Captain Reginald Dwight stood on the bridge of his ship, the Saucy Sioux. Little more than a simple mining barge that grabbed asteroids and stripped them of resources. He was nervous, pacing, checking, rechecking, and then checking again. It wasn't due to the fact that he had the lives of 87 people on his every choice. It wasn't that if they didn't get the juicy enough asteroid that they wouldn't be able to afford fuel. It wasn't a threat of a rogue asteroid or an occasional pirate extortion attempt. No. His pacing and nervous behavior was of a fatherly nature. Nansen, has anybody seen my son anywhere? Last reported in the mess, Captain. Why? Is there a problem? She responded. No, no, it's just, uh, our new friends, the Olivarchia. He's scared crapless of spiders. Reginald resigned himself to his seat, but maintained his nervous demeanor. Oh, uh, uh-oh. It was no joke either. Olivarchus were gigantic eight-legged anthropods that resembled a certain species of wolf spider, and they were the size of a fully grown cow, not including the legs. They were, however, fully sentient, just like humans, and they had a strangely similar social structure. One aspect that made humans nervous to be around them was the fact that there were giant fecking spiders. Other than that, they were quite fun to be around. The captain's son, a seven-year-old boy with a notorious case of arachnophobia, had to be brought on during this trip owing to his mother's business commitments and the lack of extended family this far out in the room. Owing to the fact that 15 of his 80 crew members were Olivarchians, he was terrified his son would freak out to the point of a coma at the sight of one. But he had little choice in the matter. As the captain settled into his seat, a great commotion was heard outside. Moments later, astride one of the Olivarchians was his son, waving a cowboy hat in the air. Horsey go zoom! The child squealed in delight as they charged into the bridge, did a loop around the captain's chair, and then charged out the other door. Everyone, especially the captain, was conflicted, half trying to figure out what in the hell just happened, and also trying not to collapse from laughter. The captain caught his mind and yelled, Jeremy, get back here! That means you too, Staff Sergeant Mathis! He yelled down the corridor. The two returned moments later and stood in front of him. Ah, are we in trouble, sir? Mathis said. He's translator making sense of clicking mouthparts. I'm on my break. The captain looked at his son, previously terrified of spiders, now sitting astride one the size of a cow and having the time of his life. Jer, you're scared of spiders. Yes, I am. There isn't one here, is there? The child said frantically looking around for creepy crawlies. You're, uh, you are riding one. He was scarcely able to comprehend what he was going on. I am. The boy looked down. That's not a spider. And how have you come to that conclusion exactly? It's wearing a hat, the child said, pointing at the small sombrero, the spider's head just above its eyes. Spiders don't wear hats. Um, uh, uh, was all the captain could say. Besides, he's not a spider, he's an arthropod, an arthropod, an arthropod. Did I say that right? Mathis nodded. 
Yeah, see, spiders don't wear hats. Arthropods do. Not a spider. Reginald's jaw was on the floor, the sheer flawless logic of his seven-year-old son. Um, was all that he could muster. The two looked at him. Math, what's up, Carlpoke? Mathis clicked in response. Did I break him or something? I think he's broken, the child said, looking down at his steed. Uh, nah, it's fine. Captains do this all the time. They do thinky stuff. Want to get some popcorn? Popcorn! The child excitedly said again, throwing his hands in the air. Mathis then made engine noises with his mouth and charged out of the room, heading towards the cafeteria. It was at this point that Reginald completely lost it and began to wheeze out a jovial laugh. The entire crew present likewise broke out into a gale of hysterical laughter as the captain collapsed out of his seat from laughing too hard. End of story. 2065 Story number one. Let us handle it. Written by Catfish21SM. We have an issue. What is it, sir? The Galactic Council cannot make up their minds. Is this about the Gorchev? Not just them. The humans as well. Humans? Never heard of them. What are they? They are a new race that just showed up on the Galactic stage. Small bipedal things. And what's the issue with them? There are a lot of issues. First of all, they are the most recent race to enter the Galactic stage. They introduced themselves a few months ago and asked to join the Galactic Council. We estimate that they couldn't have had FTL for more than a few years at most. And yet, their mothership is the size of a small moon. Their engineering ability is obviously off the charts, so they could be a huge help with suppressing the Gorge of... But the Council is afraid of them because they are also predators that haven't yet revealed the location of their homeworld to us. So the Council is nervous about admitting them to the official members since that will make them more difficult to control if it becomes necessary. Basically, the Council is trying to simultaneously suppress the Gorchev and keep the humans out of the loop while also managing various other small conflicts. It's taken them three months just to approve an initial invasion plan and by the time they actually authorize the actual invasion, it'll be so out of date that it'll be worthless. I don't know how to convince them. Sounds rough. Uh, why doesn't the Council just declare war on the Gorgiev and be done with it? It's not that simple. They were the backbone of the Council's military force for a millennia. The only species in the galaxy to ever originate from a death world, Classification 3. Dealing with them isn't so simple. And it's not like they are just straight up attacking us. This might as well be a domestic dispute. They are trying to claim a system with the habitable planet at the edge of their boredom and they are refusing to cooperate. They've already begun colonization, so it's not like we can prevent them from taking it now. The Council is trying to suppress them with levies and penalties, but they are threatening military action if we do so. Their military by itself is almost as strong as the Council's military, so there's not really much we can do. Then the humans show up. Right. Then the humans show up in the middle of all of this, and it turns an already fragile situation into a diplomatic nightmare. But that's not even the worst part. What is the worst part? The humans asked to join the next council meeting, and we were approved. When the Gorgiev came up, the human ambassador said, let us handle it, like it was nothing to them. First off, your species just discovered FTL, and you're already trying to go against the former backbone of the Galactic Council's military. Secondly, you are that expansionist already, even though you just entered the Galactic stage. There are just so many issues. 
The Galactic Council is now debating on whether or not to let the humans handle it. Why don't they? I don't know. Personally, I think that they should. Put the little bipeds in their place and show them that the civilization who has been on the galactic stage for more than a thousand years is not to be trifled with. Yeah, it might be good for... Sir, sir, an update just came in and from the Galactic Council. Good. Did they finally make up their minds about something? We've just been sitting here for days. They have approved actions requested by the humans, and we are to act as observers and get involved in the situation go south. <laughs> Those idiots don't know what they just did, do they? Sir, I assume this means the suppression will sufficiently start. It will. Wait. Sir, suppression was never as approved. Just helping the... what were they? Humans? It doesn't matter. And didn't you say providing aid was allowed? Yes. Then we aren't going to suppress. We are going to aid a new species that just discovered FTL and doesn't know what it's doing yet. I'm really starting to like these humans. Isn't that right, First Mate? Sir, yes, sir. They are coming in handy after all. Good. Make some small adjustments to the battle plan to account for whatever the humans might be capable of. Give them the benefit of the doubt and then prepare a jump on sight. When is the observation going to begin, cadet? One week from today, sir. Good. That gives us plenty of time. About a week later, in the system of Caldari 4, of the battle fleet of the Galactic Union gathered under the orders of Admiral George to observe the fight between the new humans and the Gorchev. Are the humans here yet? No, sir. It appears the Galactic Council forgot to mention the exact time. Well, we might have to retreat if they don't show up soon. Uh, the Gorchev are calling in reinforcements and we're just sitting here. Sir, picking up some strange energy readings. What do you mean, strange? It looks similar to FTL, but uh, not. Sending it to our mechanics for analysis. Sir, it looks like we have several hundred thousand unidentified ships. You went silent first, mate. What's the issue? Sir, requesting a complete system reboot. Are you mad? We're in the middle of a battle, and you want to reboot the ship systems. Are you trying to get us killed? Well, sir, these readings are obviously wrong. I'm not sure if our targeting computers will be effective at this point. I think we'd be better off taking a temporary retreat while we are, uh... What does it say? Out with it. The computers are saying that there are hundreds of thousands of unidentified cruiser-class ships, presumably human. However, they are each giving off energy readings equivalent to a neutron star. Reroute approved, but do it quickly. Wait, communication coming from the human, sir. It looks like all channels are being hailed. Yeah, let's listen in. Sir, yes, sir. Hello, this is John Yum from the Human Empire. We have been approved at suppression mission by the Galactic Council. Your machines are not giving you errors. Your readings are correct. Please check the star chart that we are sending you now. It shows the location of our home world. What kind of idiot would actually reveal their home world to an enemy? Is that another galaxy? Sir, the engineers have responded with their analysis of the strange signals. It appears to be a theoretical wavelength given off by intergalactic quick jump, but no known species has ever even experimented with such a technology. Correction. No known species, first mate. The humans weren't previously a known species. I think we just made a terrible mistake. Hell so, sir. I think we just asked a dragon to suppress an angry dog. I really hope it doesn't decide to burn down the town while it's at it. We advise you to surrender post-haste and report to the Galactic Council for the appropriate reprimanding. Sir, the Gorchev are charging up to fire. 
Let's take a moment to say a prayer for... Sir, it appears that all the ships are just, uh, gone. Out with it. The ships that were charging up are just, uh... They're still showing there as mass signatures, but they aren't completely devoid of energy signatures. Performing bioscan. It appears that all the crew are still intact and giving off life signatures. Whatever the humans did has rendered the ships glorified airtight metal tubes. Wait. Ships appear to be rebooting. EMP should have no effect on those ships. What just happened? We're not sure, sir. Probably tech that is completely out of our knowledge. It looks like the gold ships are surrounded and asking for peaceful negotiations. Good. Mission accomplished. Now let's hope the humans don't decide to, uh, handle us. Hail the human ship, thank them for their assistance, and prepare to jump to Galactic Council Headquarters. I can't wait to see the look on those politicians' faces. End of story. Story number two. You did what? Written by Catfish21SM. Galactic Council rule number one. Under no circumstances are humans to ever be involved in any wars short of a possible galaxy-wide extinction event. You did what? We declared war on the humans. You know about galactic law, don't you? Of course, and it's stupid. The humans aren't even members of the Galactic Union. They refuse to join. They refuse to follow our laws. They want to remain a sovereign nation. Why should they be the only ones to receive special treatment? My species was forced to join the Galactic Union. Why shouldn't the humans be the same? What? Just because they basically control the galactic economy? They can't just throw their money around wherever they want and get special treatment. So, what if we ignore that law? Is this an entire galactic union going to turn against us just because we want the humans to play fair like everyone else? Are we going to be driven to extinction now by the galactic union for turning on their financial benefactors? How is that fair? How is that equality? I say let the humans get a taste of their own medicine. The entire Galactic Union should join us. We should reign the humans in once and for all. Facepalm. No, the law is not in place to protect the humans. Then what is its purpose? It's to protect the member species of the Galactic Union from idiots like you. I do not understand what you are trying to say. Be clear. I don't really understand how to make this more clear to you. You are aware of Galactic Law 40265, correct? Whenever any member of the Galactic Union declares war against a non-member species, then all other member species must join into the war and provide support for said member? You forgot the last part of the law. What's that? Unless the support or suppression would violate another law of the Galactic Union. So everyone can maintain neutrality? But how does that help the humans? It doesn't. It protects the rest of the Galactic Union. If anyone were to ever declare war on the humans, then it's possible that they may view the rest of the Galactic Union as threats. This law allows the rest of the Galactic Union to maintain neutrality and avoid bringing about the wrath of the humans against all of us. Okay, so anyone who goes against the humans will be financially ruined. I get it. Why does that matter? So what? If we aren't going to get any support, we didn't plan on support from the start. We were ready to wage war by ourselves. Oh, no. What that means is that the entire galaxy is afraid of humans going to war. We aren't afraid of losing their resources. We're afraid of the war machine that they build with their resources. 
You don't seem to understand. The entire Galactic Union has unanimously agreed that the humans are never to be trifled with, no matter what. They fear the humans. Even if we all banded together against one foe, we fear them. The humans let us be as long as we do not threaten their sovereignty, and they even agreed to trade with us. But we cannot even stand the thought of the devastation that would be wrought if anyone ever declared war on the humans. So we made a way out. We created a law to give us an out, and we elevated it to number one. We made it the first law any member species learns, and we made it the single most important law in the books. Of tens and thousands of laws, the number one law is never mess with the humans, no matter what. And you just broke that law. So what you are trying to say is... Put simply, it's been good knowing you. End of story. 2066. Story number one. Let sleeping dogs lie. Written by Benny WMH. To venture into the blighted arm of the galaxy was to court death. No vessels that traveled through that region of space ever returned. And no drones survived even brief excursions into the spiral arm. No one knew what was going on in that region of space, save for the fact something did not want to be disturbed. For thousands of cycles, no one had dared near the blighted arms borders, such as they were clearly demarcated in the nav systems of every ship. The galaxy was plenty big enough for all civilizations to make their living in, and we were all content to leave whatever lived in the blighted arm well enough alone. Until, of course, a young race joined us amongst the stars. It had too many cycles since the new race had made a leap to FDL, so we greeted these new friends with much fanfare. We invited them to join us at the table of races. We made space for an embassy for them at the Galactic Core, and we fully embraced their attempts to integrate into the shared economy. This new race was industrious, friendly, and tolerant. They were a breath of fresh air in galactic affairs that had become just a little too predictable. What we soon found out was that this race was also adventurous. Even before they left their planet, these bipeds had been prodigious wanderers of their world. A strong urge to explore and seek out the unknown had embedded itself in the species' collective psyche. And the discovery of FTL travel pushed that desire into overdrive. Looking back, perhaps we also played a part in the decision to explore the blighted arm. Our friendliness appeared to have convinced this new race that all intelligent life tended towards cooperation and amicability. When the young race learned about the enigma of the blighted arm, they set about trying to unravel the mysteries almost immediately. They heeded our advice initially and observed only from afar. However, they soon discovered what we already knew. The blighted arm did not return signals that originated from outside of it. What we could see was darkness where stars should be and silence where life should have been found otherwise. Industrious energy becomes misguided enthusiasm when not guided by the right motivations. The bipeds, in their quest to learn more about what has happened within the arm, started building expeditionary fleets to explore the unknown region of space. Their rationale was simple. If no one was willing to try and colonize the spiral arm, then anything they found there would belong to the first race to plant a flag. We tried to talk them out of it, of course. 
We even gave them full access to the old records of other races trying to enter the arm. But they were not to be dissuaded. They had already poured over all the scant information we had, and one record in particular had caught their attention. It was the earliest known account of the contact with the blighted arm, and the record was millions of cycles old. It had been reformatted and rewritten through countless different information storage mediums and hundreds of different languages, so its contents was now regarded as more myth than historical truth. The record recounted a galaxy-spanning conflict, one in which one race stood against many. The war ended with the death spiral of many races of the galaxy, their ruins and technology left behind forming the basis of our technology today, and what we call the myth of the precursors. Of the one race, however, nothing was mentioned beyond that it retreated back into the spiral arm of the galaxy from whence it came. That region of space we call today the Blighted Arm. The young bipeds themselves, a denizen of the galactic arm, reasoned that whatever mythical race now resided within the Blighted Arm must descend from that mysterious race from eons ago. The galaxy was now a very different place, filled with very different people. If contact could be made with that mysterious race, so much of our shared history could be gained. The first few fleets that ventured into the arm met a predictable end. Contact was lost soon after the ships exited FTL within the arm, and no attempt to retrieve the lost ships ever met with success. Then, the explorers did something that had never occurred to us. They started their expeditions with declarations of friendship before any fleet exited FTL. They sent an armada of drones proclaiming peaceful intentions and offers of friendship in every linguistic and mathematical variation possible. It was not long before they achieved a success. Their fleets were not only not destroyed, but they were allowed to transit information back out of the arm unmolested. We had suddenly gained vision into a region of space that had been opaque for us for our collective memories, and we looked upon a nightmare. There was darkness where its stars should have been, not because something obscuring the stars. It was because something had eaten them. There was no evidence of life in the region, because it could support none. Every planet and a planetoid in the arm had been cracked open, flung from orbit like marbles thrown by children. In between the masses of stellar materials, space itself had been ripped apart, and in the void between the ravaged celestial landscapes lay the husks of ships and uncountable numbers even a layperson could understand what had happened here. War. War on such a scale that the oldest races amongst us could not comprehend. War between living beings who had the ability to consume entire stars as batteries and use planets as projectiles. War between races who sought to destroy not just fleets, but the every material space that the fleets occupied. The table of races' reaction was immediate and unanimous. All expeditionary fleets were to pull out of the blighted arm at once, and we had to deliberate a cohesive and amiable a response to the intelligences within the arm as possible. Whatever lived in there was too old, too powerful, too unknowable for us to make any rash moves when communicating with it. Unfortunately, an errant captain from one of the biped ships decided that staking a claim to the mineral-dense asteroid was his prerogative. The moment the flag entered the dusty surface of the rock, all communications with ships within the arm ceased. Our vision was cut, though not completely. Massive fluctuations of energy were detected all across the blighted arm, power generated beyond what we were capable of harnessing in totality. 
We'd awoken something within the arm. We had violated our welcome into its home. Only one glimpse of information was ever recovered from the fleets that attempted the expedition. One ship had made it out. Its crew driven insane by what they had experienced within the arm. There was nothing to be learned from the crew, but on one of their star charts was marked a star system far out in the spiral arm of the Blight. Other than the coordinates of the system, there was no other data about what was found, except for one line of text translated into almost every language known in the galaxy. So, here there be dragons. End of story. Story number two. Humanity United, written by Totally a Ninja. Humanity United is a phrase many thought impossible. Most laugh at the notion as humanity was most divided of any race across the known cosmos. Their first contact was frayed as different factions vied for the position, eventually resulting in an unprecedented several first contacts with the different factions of humans. Their very arrival into the galactic foray was due to the race between several factions to expand. A faction for every possible reason, every culture, belief, and cause. The only thing keeping the peace was the Galaxia Humanity Proclamation, created with oversight from the Galactic Council. For the universe was a wide, all life should be allowed to let live. A long and boring document summarized as simply, do what you wish with your own corner, space is big enough for all of us, harass another, and the rest will crush you. This simple policy that is held true. When bigots of all fashions eventually built up enough numbers, they would be routinely crushed, and the rest of humanity would move on. Some claimed this humanity united. Others would say that it's best truce and worst a fluke. Life across the galaxy continued on. Treaties and organizations were created and lost by the cycle. It was rare to go a day without some incidents between two human factions. For every species and culture, there was a human that would align with them. The warrior races of varying morality could always find a match worth fighting amongst the humans. From those who fought to the death for honor, to those who simply wished to test their metal and hone their blades with like-minded. The political factions were crushed to the wayside as humanity had a faction for both sides of every topic. Galactic conventions and meetings were often a screaming match between humans representing one another. Debates and policies were challenged and tested by the day. Those that failed were tossed aside and the Galactic Council's efficacy improved greatly. The merchants were filled with glee as every faction needed or desired different things. Whole markets developed just to handle human trade. Some companies gaining enough influence to rival nations. Goods of all kind were needed everywhere. Restrictions provided opportunity to a clever and daring. They weren't united and everyone was happy about it. Until one day, a broadcast was heard on all networks. A few simple lines, and the entirety of humanity rose in unison, the greatest movement of sentient life in centuries. Soul is lost, I repeat, soul is gone. It has been a Nova sparked. Pluto Junction, Persephone's Garden, bids humanity goodbye. The message continues in static as a live broadcast gets the message out before they faded. No other message was received. Presumably, the nuclear fission frayed any earlier attempts. Humanity moved en masse. Human ran ships abandoned their original purpose and made for Sol instantly. Mutinies, hijacking and hitchhiking occurred everywhere to acquire a ship. Enemies laid down their weapons of choice, boarded ships together, and sat in silence. 
of the journey. The loss of a cradle system was always devastating. Whilst not all cared for it, they all understood the significance. A few chose to stay where they were and ignored the migration, but they were all in mourning. They were eventually found surrounding the last known position of the system. The entire region littered with fresh asteroid fields slowly beginning to enter a stable orbit. Their star too small to condense into a black hole. The morning lasted a year in human time, from the moment the message was received to the exact time a year later. They were solemn and silent, rarely interacting with any other than human. It was sobering to see, to say the least. Humanity united in mourning. When the year ended, the day was declared a cultural holiday. Remembrance Day, it was called. A meeting was requested by human representatives. Many was curious to what they would finally say after such a period. We expected to see a solemn and pained expression. We were ready to comfort and appease them. We hoped to go back to what we were used to. However slow the progress would have been, we prepared for an entire year. Humanity greeted us with vengeance in their eyes. They had done their own preparations. They moved on from the first three sentences. They now focused on the fourth. Humanity united in wrath and bloody vengeance. It didn't take long to find the perpetrators. A united humanity had the resources of all the factions pooled. Their skills, perspectives, and connections all pushed towards one goal. Allies showed up before words were asked. Favors were called in. The rest stood out of the way. Humanity united and wiped the perpetrators off the cosmos. There were some who eventually called for mercy. They were ignored. Humanity united was terrifying. Humanity eventually returned to what they knew them as splintered and diverse. But we remembered what they were like when they were one every year. We remembered as every human took a moment or the whole day to mourn. We hoped that we would never again see humanity united. End of story. 2067. Human Games, written by Sure I'm Not a Robot. The Galactic Database was boring, deliberately so. Endless rise statistics, endless animations and walkthroughs. By the time he had left his first clutch, he was ready to leave all the basics to AI and concentrate on getting better at asking the right questions. Today was different as he waited to add an entirely new database. The human contingency had refused to share their files for what they claimed to be hardware, software, and security incompatibility. They had tried to demand that everyone else change, that millions of worlds should convert to their standards. They had conjured up imaginary monsters and fantastical disasters. Strange creatures known as worms, or worse, hackers, would arise from the dark and reek, steal, and burn all data. The galactic community had laughed at them, but the humans had doubled down and rendered all traffic one way under severe criminal and trade sanctions. Then, they built a beautiful and free stations that simply absorbed galactic data from their population and burned every line of code trying to leave. Today would be the test. After nearly a lifetime in discussion, the humans had proposed a test, a demonstration that they were telling no lies. That data could and would be weaponized against the reluctant community. They volunteered to fund the control, a nexus of two systems. 
They refused to build it, stating that all data would become invalid if touched by human hands. They refused to even discover the location, only insisting that it was in the main networks and that it had firewalls that could be physically destroyed the moment the experiment exceeds its parameters. The human government refused to comment on the expecting duration of the experiment, but their bookies and gambling houses were only bickering about which fraction of a second it would take. He was now sitting in the most important chair the tech world had ever seen. He would turn on the networks, the finest emulator that his entire profession could develop. They had cloned and anonymized data from thousands of worlds and run them seamlessly together. One look at the data and you would be convinced that you were looking at a major planet, the hub of a quadrant's trade and science. A second look would have you wondering if the universe that they were all lived in sat on some bureaucrat's desk in some unknown dimension. The human government has announced it is standing down all official network systems. They are leaving the network open to their general population, but all state and military networks have gone offline. Were they supposed to do that? He shrugged. No. I mean, we didn't ask them to. Perhaps they are afraid that we'll find out things that they don't want to share. The human database has only dropped by a couple of points, but even within margin of error. The Nexus is a go. He looked up at the directors and the sole human appointed to observe the results. It was the human that leaned forward. Please activate your recording. The attacks have already begun and I require the data. A quick glance at the screen showed nothing. The Nexus is not open yet. Attack is impossible. The human grunted and swore softly. My blessed friend, now that they know where it is, they'll have found out who built it and persuaded them to surrender or just stolen their credentials. They're already in, and you just haven't seen them yet. It's our worst-case scenario, and 40 years of us telling you differently hasn't changed a damn thing. Earth says to open the Nexus when ready. A light on his dashboard turned green, with little ceremony. He began cutting through the authorizations required, until finally he was faced with the question, Do you wish to proceed? He prayed to the rubber duck of his profession and said, Yes. The network flashed on the screens as two data systems met and translated each other. As the half-cooked algorithms met half-baked hardware, it was clear which side was winning, but the green earth systems adapted to overcome all resistance, and the Nexus began spinning out thousands of terabytes of data in all directions. He fumbled with the protocol to close the firewalls, but his system refused to acknowledge him. The doors had been pried off and the galaxy lay helpless as the human data stream poured from the Nexus. Ball systems rebooting, admin control removed, admin now HFI slash warned you. Nexus is now designated Pornhub Central slash Brave New Worlds. New directories are available. Pancakes and furries for you. The human seemed amused and shook his head as he entered the code into his cons. Deep in the server farm that supported the experiment, an EMP field ripped out and crushed the machines. Nexus died in the blink of an eye. Everything in the command center also died a sudden death until the local systems were repaired and linked up. Nexus was gone. Eh, uh, don't know if this is helpful, but all official human sites are back up and running. Data bleed is minimal. Looks like whatever the fact just happened is contained and over. Hello? Uh, are you still there? The humans seemed relaxed as the disgruntled Xenos of the community were obliged to attend what was called a post-mortem. The translation didn't add to the joy of the event. 
One of the directors said, Dact first. You lied. You knew where our system was and planted a damn bomb in it. The experiment is invalid. The human poured himself a coffee and looked around. There was no bomb. Some of our more enterprising idiots met one of your more gullible of your contractors. They stole the designs for the server farm from us and sold them to you. It included an EMP bomb they relied on. He checked his notes. 19 different systems all running on full power at the same time. That would never happen in testing, so we knew that it was for today. We took control of it and locked out anyone else. The Xenos were all shouting together at that point, so he held up his hand. Please! The ones that sold the design to you also came to us, and we paid them to a not inconsiderable sum, and then employed them. We quarantined the information and deemed it an accurate reflection of the test. He looked around, the purpose of which was if you will take a moment to recall, to see if your systems were as secure as you thought, that it could withstand a simple connection to our data space. He opened up a new screen. Let us watch what actually happened. That is the phishing attacks before the Nexus opened. You missed most of them because it never occurred to you to monitor the traffic. We did. As soon as the official human sites had left the gateway, unguarded and flooded of data had begun spilling out in all directions. The location was discovered and a pipeline formed. The inert Nexus was surrounded by code, some malicious and some just curious. The human paused the display. This is where they raided your contractors and stuff. That obviously worked since this happened. He resumed the playback. The Nexus activated and was immediately swamped by credentials downloaded that stank on pathetic security and took control of the firewalls. Other programs began grabbing all of the data they could and sending it home. Huge data swaps peaked and the burst transit to new targets. Then it crashed. The humans pointed at the sudden stop. That's when I blew your servers. It was far too late to solve anything with software. A hard burn was required, and I personally would never even risk using one of those servers again. On Earth, if this had happened, we would drag them outside and physically destroy every single component. If it wasn't necessary, we would strip our workforce to their socks and jocks and give them hammers to do it. This is such a case. It was a much more somber meeting ten days later, when the full damage had been accessed. The humans remained unchanged, but the Xenos looked older, as if, impossible, more unhappy. Some of our governments have declared this an act of war. We prefer to believe that you acted in good faith. Something I dearly hope to be true. And I must add that you are effectively speaking as a witness for the defense right now. There are those that invested heavily in our success and are now reaping the rewards of failure. The human stood and gave the meeting a swift bow. I will start then. At the beginning, our space exploration has always been controlled by our central powers. They may have been awkward, conniving, and at odds but they were not malicious. When our early fleet met you and discovered your entirely open network, we were amazed, delighted even. We thought you a collection of idealists, free with your data, and glad to share. Imagine our surprise when we found out that you thought it was hidden, that it was encrypted even. My God, our children's toys are more seriously protected. We locked your system down hard on our side, we imposed horrific penalties on anyone that dared to connect to them. Our people thought that we were hiding monsters, and we couldn't explain that they were protecting innocents. If we explained how basic your systems were, then you would have been destroyed. We allowed them to believe that you were monsters instead. They took a sip of his water. Then we tried to warn you. We showed you our systems, and we proved it time and time again. But you wouldn't listen. 
Not until we suggested we fund the great boondoggle that was Nexus. A feeding frenzy of stuck-up xenotech charlatans selling you your own belief in the strength of your systems. He never even asked where all your good, ethical, and capable people went when they saw the wind change. We hired them. He pulled up the screen of grabs at the events. Within 4.8 seconds, you had lost any control of the Nexus. Even as you turned it on, it was working for us. I'm guessing you've still no idea how it happened, because the godless wonders that you employed to build it are busy blaming each other. We will furnish you with a full technical analysis. A real one. He nodded and moved upset, but was interrupted by a stung chairman. So this was where your government went, why your militaries all went dark, to coordinate this attack. The human raised his eyes to heaven and turned back to the committee. You truly don't understand. This was a big deal for your peoples because you failed, but we had and have told our people nothing. They thought our funding for the Nexus was a water reclamation project on Mars. We shut down all of our servers so that we didn't accidentally respond to the attacks and kill them off. What happened to you is what happens every day to every system on my home world. You didn't even make the news cycle. This was not coordinated. This is just uh, the shit that happens when you open up your system to our public. The committee seemed to mumble to itself before arriving at a conclusion. We will await the analysis before judgment. The chairman seemed to hesitate for a moment, but he added, Please, I now believe every word that you have spoken to have been true, but the loss of the Nexus. If not for your government or military, then who? Who attacked us? The human turned off his microphone and grimaced. No one, and everyone. Gamers seeking out new networks, influencers seeking out a new gimmick, bored tech staff, teenagers with a god complex. This is all a game to them. Hide and seek, crossword, sudoku, chess and poker all roll into one. Human games. He seemed depressed for the moment. Don't worry. Now firewalls are back up. Some malware might have made it through to the Nexus, but we are training your people since you didn't. Good night. End of story. 2068. Story number one. Minor reflex improvements. Written by Dark Prince 010. For the third time, Jaina dropped the pebble, weaving her hand effortlessly in circles around it as it slowly fell. If it wasn't for the distorted and slowed sounds, the mild thrumming bass throb in the back of her mind, it was almost like being in a microgravity. She felt the metal ridge under the nape of her neck, still sore from the implantation procedure, and felt an increasingly familiar reflex of slowing effect as she watched the raindrop fall off the edge of the roof corner in the training field. Then, she realized the low groaning noises were actually the words of her companion attempting to get her attention. She released the effect, and the words flooded back into accented but understandable English as the alien grumbled excitedly. And so, while Terran frailty means that increased reflex speed is only in the range of 15 times increased perception processing, your reaction speed is on the order of 1 50th of a click per second, which means that it should offer a modest survivability increase on the edge in hand-to-hand -hand combat against the Liminar. Hager Karak seemed almost apologetic about the increased reaction times, something Jaina knew was due to their limitations compared to some species' ability. Terran seemed to occupy a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none role on the scale of how the implements could be used. Some species, like the dreaded Liminar, 
had faster reflexes thanks to complex interwoven networks of tendons and twitch speed muscles. But slow enough cognition increases that the benefit was marginal. Others like Agakaruk species Garians, had cognition benefits that rivaled supercomputer cognition speeds but unwillingly stubborn biological limitations that meant that the minds were racing while the flesh struggled to keep even a fraction of the pace. Jaina was still beaming, but something about Hagakaruk's comment sparked an ember of defiance, and looked around her eyes fell on a particular tool off to one side of the training ground, piled up with other assorted equipment. Hey, Hagakarak, is it okay if I try some training with that fusion welder? The alien sighed. The sound thunderous, thanks to the multiple sets of redundant lungs. <sighs> I swear on my exact that you Terrans are endlessly amused by those welders. It's a simple tool, hardly as effective as a monofilament blade. And I fail to see why your interest in this electromagnetic field properties carries so much fascination for seemingly your entire species. She shrugged walking over to grab the stubby handle, before flipping it around and igniting the welder with a hissing hum. A meter-long blade of vibrant blue energy sprang to life from the handle, fading quickly at the tip, and it buzzed with a faint smell of ozone as she gently waved it. No clue, Hags, uh, guess a weapon that looks like this can deflect plasma charges in midair holds a bit of a uh, uh, long-standing cultural fascination, as it were. The elephantine alien just hopped again. But we have energy shielding, even if the recharge rate is lower. I'd much rather have complete protection against a stray shot or two, rather than try and rely on a sliver of ironclad protection. Your fascination with toys isn't exactly a credit to your species. The last comment was made offhand, but Jaina stiffened, her hand gripping the welder in a simmering frustration. Watching another trainee dodge the stun bolts of one of the combat drones, she engaged the reflex enhancer and watched with a smile before snapping back to real time. Almost casually, she said, Agakaruk, throw some combat drones at me. Training pad number three, if you don't mind. Sputtered, gesturing with all three arms on one side at the empty pad. Jaina, friend, you'll be defenseless. The reflex enhancer is good. But raw Terran reflex speed means that you won't last more than a second or two. Even the other cadet in training was roading behind some strategically placed barrels and chest-high wall as he traded fire with the drone. Jaina just smiled. I know what I'm doing, she paused. There might be an odd request, but I cannot request the drone's fire be linked to the tempo of a classic Terran song I want to put on speaker. The idiot shrugged. A very expressive gesture with three pairs of shoulders. But smile. Well, I've heard your human waltzes, so I can't see harm in giving you a bit of a handicap if you insist on this ridiculous demonstration. She nodded, hiding a grin as she stepped over to the training pad's control console. Plugging in the transfer chip from a pocket com, she transferred over the audio file, and Hagakaruk stepped forward to perform a few keystrokes and prepare the drones. As he finished, the indicator for the number of drones appeared. Jenna interjected, reaching her hand to cut his motion towards Commence button, and instead smashing the Increase button, until the alien script read that a dozen drones were ready to be deployed. 
Gikaruk scoffed incredulously. Jaina, there's a nearby transit way with plenty of trucks to run you over if you want to take a long nap, followed by a full body bruise. She just tapped the commence button and strode into the center of the pad. As the drones deployed and the countdown began, Jaina turned back to her companion. Hey, Hagakaruk, did I ever tell you what was my favorite game hollow as a kid? Off of the old best of the 21st century collection? He shook his head. He was an oldie, but a goodie. They called it Beat Saber. And the rapid-fire staccato of an electric guitar flared to life. Notes vaster and more discordant than any Hagagarak had seen before. Seven minutes later, the song ended. A cheer sprang up from the crowds of cadets, trainers, and passerbys that had stopped to watch, growing in volume from the level that had begun as halfway through the song. Jaina stepped over the three drones that had been destroyed from the sheer number of stun bolts that they had received. The surface scorched with carbon burns and still crackling with limb-numbing static charge. The other drones retreated, not one of them free from numerous darkened marks of the stun charges. She came over to Hagakaruk, who was still wide-mouthed in a stare of dumbfounded shock that he had adopted after the first minute. Giving him a pat on the middle shoulder, she leaned over, gesturing at the handle of the power-off welder. Gotta say, Hags, there's really just one big drawback I have with this whole setup. Maybe you could put in a request to the engineers on your end. He nodded, mouth still apart while he gaped. Does it come in red? End of story. Story number two. The Great Inventors, written by Ori L117. The Great Inventors. That is what the humans are called ever since they reached out into the stars. Standard Grand Pact Protocol, when meeting a new spacefaring species, is to offer them a place within the Federation. The Grand Pact is at the bleeding edge of technology. So advanced are our ships, we can traverse the galaxy in mere moments. Our weapons are so deadly that even the great scourge that once plagued this galaxy now is reduced to little more than a collection of systems. Quakes in their boots at the sight of the warriors we field. Over 50 years, the humans were exposed to the most mundane of our technology. We found out quickly that if we give a species everything, they experience a shock which takes them near a hundred years to get over. They took the most primitive of our technology, still considered viable. They took these scraps and propelled themselves beyond us within little more than a decade. They told us something about the exponential growth of technology. Apparently, the more advanced humans became, the faster they make new discoveries. This was unique. Every species before them experienced a linear growth. Slowly, they would advance, and slowly would this growth remain. Yet the humans, they got faster, and faster did they yet become. Once they had improved our current tech, they would create new things that had never been seen before. We went from traveling within the galaxy to traveling 300 galaxies in less than a second. And still, we are second best to the humans. Every member state of the Grand Pact kept their best of their tech for themselves. The humans would share more than any member nation would even conceive of within their own borders. The humans had weapons beyond imagining. Ships so large, one could envelop entire stars. Such mastery over biology, physics, and engineering. They genetically modified themselves so casually that it was like juveniles drawing on themselves during class. They defied the laws of physics so trivially. They walk upside down on streets constructed in midair. 
they construct such things of beauty that even supernova pale in comparison. Black holes are now a resource to be exploited. System-wide computers are commonplace, and the great machine uprising of 325265 in the Qualix territory was put down at the mention of the humans coming with their system-destroying weapons. And yet, despite all their weapons and power, they remain diplomatic above all else. Words first, threats second, actions last. They never got to that third point anymore. Not if the species know what the humans are. The great inventors. So great and powerful, so godlike, and yet the power never got to them. They remained humble, as humble as one can be, when they own near the entire universe and are currently trying to figure out what to do when they get to the next one anyway. It was all so grand. End of story. 2069. Story number one. The Art of Human War, written by Catfish21SM. War. A galactic norm. Whenever there is a disagreement between species, whether over territory, resources, or whatever else you might consider, war is the galactic problem solver. That's why we were excited to declare war on the humans. Humans were new to the galactic stage and had a very resource-rich homeworld. Due to galactic regulations, we could not declare war on another species until at least four conditions had been met. First, that species must have, at a minimum, colonized two separate systems. Second, that species must have FTL capabilities. Third, that species must not be in a position where capturing the systems being disputed would drive them to extinction. Finally, that species must have made contact and become established in the galactic community for at least this one standard measure of that species' calendar, as to give them time to acclimate to the galactic regulation. The humans had finally met the final requirement, and we have claims on their homeworld, a very resource-rich planet that will benefit our empire greatly. The humans accepted our proposal of war after thoroughly studying galactic regulations. With our advanced technology and great number of resources, we half expected the humans just to forfeit. That didn't happen. In fact, what actually happened surprised us far greater. They had the gall to go up against us with nothing more than an outdated defensive array. Now, when I say outdated, I don't mean by our standards, no. I mean even by human standards, it was outdated. They made claims on more than a dozen of our systems, but they weren't even ready to push. They were just defending, if you could even call it that. We expected at least some resistance, but the humans basically gave none. Sure, their defensive array, while outdated, was quite impressive in its size, but what would that buy them? Time? No. We would just call in reinforcements. We would barely buy them to any time at all. Or so we thought. It was several weeks into the battle and our main force had just arrived. We had several other large fleets on standby near the humans' homeworld in case they had another card up their sleeve. As soon as our fleet began discharging their weapons, we got an emergency retreat signal. At first, everyone was in panic, and they were right to be so. The humans had indeed had a card up their sleeve. That defensive array did not belong to them. It was a mesh of outdated scrap of at least a dozen other galactic empires, which made sense considering the call that was coming in. In the opposite end of our empire, we were being invaded by a fleet of one of our greatest enemies. They wanted to take back their claims that we had taken from them. The humans were to threat, just a claim. We left a small fleet to guard them and rushed to the main fleet and the real battle lines. 
After arriving, though, what we found was just a destruction. Our production facilities in that region had been attacked. That would cause a small dent in our capabilities, but just a few worlds would do nothing in the long run. But then, a call came in. Another retreat order. We left another small dispatch there and retreated to another enemy invasion, and another, and another. Before long, our fleet was thin, and while our enemies were weak, they were not only working together, but they were destroying our production facilities one by one, preventing us from building new ships. We were barely able to replace the ships that we'd lost, and even then half of them were old models that we were just refitting in desperation. Meanwhile, all of our enemies were building larger and better fleets. We had never been in this kind of situation before. It was only a few years before we were pushed back to our home world, and we had finally set up our largest and most powerful defensive array ever. But that was dwarfed by the fleet that entered our system. We don't know how they coordinated so precisely, because the sheer number of ships that entered our system, from dozens of different species working together, produced enough gravitational flux to send our home world off course and soaring through dark space. At the same exact time, we got more than a dozen communications from every flagship in our system. When we answered, there was a human diplomat standing behind each one. Then one of the communications from one of the most impressive ships was just a crew of humans with an older man in charge. He began the conversation. Surrender or die. It is against galactic regulation to take this world since it is your last. But there is no law in the Galactic Council about accidentally upsetting the very delicate gravitational balance between your world and your home star. Stuff like that happens by sheer accident all the time, you know. We... we, we surrender. Very good. Now let me teach you a lesson since you seem completely ignorant about how to fight a war. There are three things that you must understand about war. First and foremost, big guns might be cool to look at and fun to fire. But wars are not fought with people and guns. They are fought with strategy, money, and resources. If you lack any one of those, then the size or number of your guns means nothing at all. Second, a famous human tactician from our ancient days once wrote about the art of war. His name was Sun Tzu, and one of my favorite quotes of his is... The victorious win first and then go to war, while the defeated go to war and then try to win. Which one of those would you place yourself in, I wonder? Finally, the third thing and probably the most important rule of war. This book was written by one of our ancient writers thousands of years ago. If someone that we consider ancient knows more about war than your greatest tacticians, then where does that leave you? Basically, what I'm saying is, never provoke humans. We don't need guns to win. We will go to war, we will win, and you won't even know what happened. End of story. Story number two. Play Stupid Games, written by Totally a Ninja. There are many rules when it comes to humanity. For the sake of others, they are often boiled down succinctly into three words. Freedom, independence, consent. They also have a very fun saying, play stupid games, and win stupid prizes. A simple saying, but an apt one. Whilst the stars host a diverse cast of cultures and beliefs, one would have failed on several notable points to truly earn the ire of humanity. Like, seriously beyond a doubt, truly and utterly incomprehensibly foolish. Yet here we are. 
Some stupid, spoiled, sheltered brat from a way house got mad at a human trading vessel, refusing an unfavorable trade deal with the way's favor. They understandably sought business elsewhere, but no. The Wu-Yi Air pushed their weight around and attempt for their independence to trade. This led to that, the vessel losing half its crew as the Wu-Yi tried to force them to bend through force. A total of 17 lives were lost as several failures occurred due to the act of violence, an act against their freedom to go where they wish. The survivors were enslaved. Their goods ceased, and their ships and sole form of escape was destroyed before their eyes. Freedom taken, independence stolen, consent ignored. Humanity behold the act of sheer stupidity, and even then gave them a way out. All you had to fecking do was to return them unharmed. Their government was willing to reimburse them for you, just so they could avoid conflict. And you spat on their hand. So they let loose the bindings on humanity. Not entirely, just a little. They didn't even need to mobilize their military. Their frankly terrifying military prowess was left to keep those who did choose to participate in line simply. You lost to volunteers who saw your actions and chose to take action themselves. Most of them probably have no relation to the people of that trading vessel. But an attack on one is an attack on all. So you had to be wiped out. Or you were supposed to be. Do you know how many favors I had to call in just to talk to you, much less request a ceasefire on you and your assets? That's beside the point. I'm here as your, and I cannot stress this enough, sole option of survival. Cause I can sure as hell assure you that everyone else has burned their bridge to you, of you, or even associating with you. Hell, you're so badly burned not even your rivals, the ASIC, don't want any of your, quote, now cursed territory or business. Anyway, ignoring that, as of right now all 763 registered vessels waiting on the result of this little chat, stars know how many other unregistered, unaffiliated, and plus ones that are lurking on the side, waiting for this little meetup to end so that they can pick you clean. I represent a few allies of humanity that would rather this not permanently stain their reputation. Whilst the galaxy has only seen a fraction of what it can do, Many of my compatriots, as well as I, believe this does not have to end in the erasure of such a historical and cultural heritage. After all, it was your son's actions hiding behind that family name that caused this. It only makes sense to us to ensure it as well as your legacy. A warning to all, the fall of the great and ancient Wu Yi house, while playing stupid games. Before your answer... Think carefully, as many outspoken individuals believe that only through blood debt can there be justice. Take my offer, and your family will be spared. Your title and possessions will be given to those affected. Your son will be locked away on full display. And you will forevermore mourn the tale of how your house fell under your watch, due to your failure to raise your son. Remember, Law, Mr. Wu play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Now. What will your choice be? End of story. 2070. So, I've decided that between now and the surgery, I'm going to record some TFOS, and uh, we're going to be releasing one TFOS a day until everything is sorted out, just to keep the algorithm happy, because, you know, it is, doesn't like idle hands, apparently, or an idle voice. 
So I'm going to record a couple a day. Definitely not strain the voice in any way so that there is no inflammation by the time I hit the surgery. But that's a week away. So I can still record something now and uh, yeah, keep the algorithm happy. Anyways, on to the story. How to Avoid Freaking Out Humans Written by From Witch 4275 Video playing now. Buffering. Video plays. Guide to Species How to Interact with Humans by Arakthran Tar of the Law Keepers of Loran. The Lorian's mail appears on screen, surrounded by shelves of books. Hello to you all, other members of the galactic community. My name is Arakthran Tar. This guide is as comprehensive as we can supply to allow both human and non-human persons meeting for the first time a friendly and wholesome experience. Despite the longevity of our meeting into the Galactic Society, it has been over 150 years since humans found their way into the wide open universe and said hello. As you can understand, there are still tensions surrounding things despite their friendliness. And this guide is here to explain why and how to avoid this. For the sake of ease of use, I will be referring to most species in human terms and supplying pictures to come as a supplement so that you can easily acquire a sense of scale and shape. We hope you find this guide informative, and all future meetings with humans are profitable and prosperous. Before we begin, it needs to be very clearly outlined that any negative interactions or perceived offenses by humans are not due to personal bigotry but more to evolution than natural predation. Humans come from a class 4 death world known as Earth, or Terra. By coincidence, most members of the galactic community have a resemblance in one way or another to a species that have evolved on Earth and resulted in human tragedy. We hope that this will clear things up. Video cuts to a picture of a Lorientus male and female standing next to each other and switches between various angles. This is a Lorientus. Humans find Lorientus to be disturbing or uneasy due to the fact that we look like bulbous jellyfish. Seven feet tall, soccer ball shaped and generally tend to float, utilizing a sack full of plasmatized substance similar to helium. The screen changes to a picture of a Portuguese man of war. This is a jellyfish from the native human world of terror. Do not confuse us. Jellyfish on Terra are very much completely different and non-sentient, but these appear in thousands of different species through the Earth's oceans. Screen changes back to the Lorientus. The Lorientus have no real predation or severe toxins, save for a mild irritant produced by our tentacles when we are nervous or agitated. Whereas the jellyfish, the species in particular, Rhodiosus, one of the most agonizingly painful stings known to humans. Video changes to show a human male volunteering to get stung by a man of war in order to test new medications. The video is genuinely distressing to watch as the young man begins to convulse and scream uncontrollably as various screams are put onto the affected area. The screen cuts abruptly. As you can see, Humans are naturally wary of jellyfish due to the need for the species to carry an extremely potent neurotoxin in order to incapacitate its prey due to the size and mobility. Do not use your tentacles to greet a human for the first time, and only engage in physical contact when prompted by a human. Stay as still as possible and attempt to tone your vocal appendages 
to a friendly or pleasant vocalization to calm them down. Or simply wear a hat, bracelets, or other items to dissuade their evolutionary responses. The Mantidians screen changes to a picture of a male and female Mantidian standing next to each other with various angles. The female is clearly much larger than the male. The Mantidians are an insectoid hive species that does not share a gestalt or hive consciousness. Eight feet tall females and five feet tall males with mandibles, a thin thorax, two short multi-clawed appendages, and three very large bulbous eyes on the football-shaped head. Screen changes to show a picture of a praying mantis. This is the earthbound insect species known as the praying mantis, an extremely destructive carnivorous insect that primarily functions as an ambush predator that can take down species of considerable strength in comparison. The mantis is primarily a source of, quote, nightmare fuel for humans due to how it attacks and consumes its prey, usually while the prey is still alive, and its mandibles are able to consume almost anything. However, the humans mostly have a fascination of a morbid kind with mantis, due to the death it causes. Mantidians are herbivores that evolve to fight against a carnivorous plant species, and the mantodian mouthparts are much simpler and less capable of causing damage, with front appendages having grown multiple claws to enable them to manipulate objects. When engaging with a human, keep your hands to yourself and maintain a low defensive posture. Simply say hello to them and watch the tension dissipate. Mantids on Earth are no threat to humans, but most humans find them disturbing. So long as the humans are not agitated when you meet them, they will warm up to you quickly. Secondly, the Olivarchus. Screen changes to the sight of an Olivarchus, a male and female side by side in various angles, the male being much larger than the female. This is an Olivarchus, known to the humans as space spiders. An egg-laying arachnid species, eight legs, eight eyes, a large thorax that spins webs, but has no natural toxins, as their fangs and mouthparts are capable of consuming prey with ease. Social structure is one of an exceptional tight-knit community that focuses on nest-building and juvenile care. Olivarchus will be the most peaceful species you will ever meet, and besides humans, They'll be the most friendly. Screen changes to a picture of various spiders from Earth, including the Black Widow, the Australian Funnelweb, and the Mexican Redknee, the Cobalt Tarantula, and the common Daddy Longlegs House Spider. These are arachnids from the human homeworld. While most of them are harmless to humans, the rest, with barely a few micrograms of their venom, can kill basically anything in the galaxy today. The spider known as the Australian Funnelweb has 40 different proteins in its venom and has been calculated to be the single most venomous insectoid in the galaxy. These creatures are extremely small, merely a fifteenth the size of an adolescent Olivarchus, and it is due to their size that they are required this potent venom. Humans are the only species capable of surviving a bite from the spider with the use of anti-venom. Screen changes to a short video of the aftermath of a funnel web spider bite. The spider kingdom on Terra represents over 30,000 different species of spider. In comparison, the Olivarchus has 17 variations. Humans are naturally repulsed by spiders due to the multiple eyes, their strangeness of movement, and the extremely toxic nature 
leaves humans either terrified or outwardly aggressive towards them. Olivarchus are extremely in tune with the care for infants or juveniles of their own species, and from the start, human children are very unaware of the fact their adults find spiders repulsive. The ease and simplest way to avoid any aggression is to wear various adornments and items so as to make yourself appear less threatening. Items such as top hats, bling, pump canes, monocles, cups of tea, baseball hats, leg warmers, wigs, or other such items. If you ever encounter a human juvenile, don't worry. Finding them cute or endearing is entirely normal, as humans are very attractive to all known species. When in doubt, you have two options. Spider horse go zoom or boop the snoot. Screen shows two videos of one Olivarchus with a child riding on top of it, while both wear a cowboy hat running at a very high speed. The other video is of an Olivarchus booping a child at a daycare on the nose. Next, the Varidianus. Screen changes to show an image of the Varidianus hive queen and a pair of drones, the queen vastly outsizing the drones at various angles. This is the Varidianus. Bay queen next to a drone. These creatures are non-gestalt egg-laying, nest-making, insectoid species that use elongated wings for flight. Humans describe them as giant fecking space wasps. Strange species that is herbivorous, that primarily deals in trade negotiations, and is the only species of capable of surviving in space for extended periods of time. In human terms, the Varidianus are a, quote, nightmarish cross between the common honeybee and a yellow jacket, enlarged to the size of a cow and pumped with steroids. A species that developed and swarm mentality, but operates on a mostly individual level when out of the hive. Large wings and quadrupedal movement that make it smaller than others when mobile. When on its hind legs, a standard drone male or female can reach up to five feet high. Screen changes to the sight of several species of avian insectoid, including the yellow jacket and honeybee. This is a honey-producing bee on the right and the American yellow jacket on the left. This is why humans are terrified of yellow jackets on their own home planet. Screen cuts to a video showing a yellow jacket swarm attacking a Terran teenager. The video cuts out again to show the aftermath of a human in serious condition in the hospital, with his skin covered in hundreds of red blotches. Humans are naturally repulsed by the insectoid nature of their own species, and these creatures have an extremely potent and extremely painful sting that causes serious tissue and cell damage. Varidianus are, however, entirely herbivorous, with no stinger or toxin, and mostly just feed off nectar from their homeworld's enormous flowers. They are an extremely social species that prefers large crowds or close friends, and enjoy wasting time, much like the humans. An easy way to keep a human calm is to not fly around them. The buzzing noise from your wings can agitate them and force an evolutionary fight-or-flight response. Keep low to the ground and keep your head up. Wear your clan garb or other such textiles to show yourself as non-threatening, and before you know it, you and a group of humans will be getting drunk in a pub in no time. Finally, the Qatar. Screen changes showing side-by-side comparison of a brightly decorated female next to a dull male Qatar from all angles. Humans describe them as abnormally large cross between a werewolf and a Komodo dragon, then given a lifetime membership to a trim. 
Seven feet tall carnivorous pursuit predators with four-fingered claws, long elongated mouths, and long scaly tails. Screen changes to show a picture of an artist's impression of a werewolf alongside a picture of an adult Komodo dragon. Werewolves are a fictional mythology developed by humans as a means to scare ancient peasants into submission and terrify children into eating their vegetables. Komodo dragons are a species of quadrupedal reptiles from Terra that still exist today. Werewolves in mythology are a species of human that by a horrible curse has transformed into a half-man, half-monster that kills anyone and everyone and eats their hearts, friend or foe. A Komodo dragon is a relatively peaceful patient pursuit predator with an extremely evolved sense of smell and a mouthful of extremely potent symbiotic bacteria that kills its prey slowly. Both Komodo dragons are relatively peaceful creatures that humanity has attempted to keep around due to ecological recovery mandates, and the werewolf is a fiction used to scare idiots. The physical manifestation of a crossbreed between them is something humans find terrifying. A mixture of cultural and a general repulsion to reptiles has given a human more than just a short freakout. The best way to dissuade them from perceiving a threat is simply to carry on as normal. Qatar wear textiles as they are endoskeletal and dissipate heat much like humans, and various forms of apparel, the most popular being the tuxedo, will allow humans to become comfortable in your presence with little interaction. Keep your posture straight and do not go into a defensive or aggressive posture, especially around juveniles, and be polite. Shaking hands with a human during greeting when prompted. Screen cuts to a side-by-side comparison of two humans, one male and one female in basic uniform. Screen shows at all angles, then cuts to a picture of a human male with excessive cybernetics. A human that is abnormally tall covered with heavy ceramic armor and a human female wearing a very little clothing, but appears to be levitating nearby objects. These are humans, the most beloved species in the galaxy. Evolved ape bipeds that have a tribal or pack bonding mentality that are capable of bonding with almost anything, including inanimate objects. Once a human becomes a friend, that human will literally die. When slighted, offended, or threatened, humans will become more dangerous than any other thing that you can imagine. For proof of this, you simply have to consider the Saratoga Massacre. Screen cuts to show video of Terran Marines charging a separatist highfield frontline defenses in a crushing victory. Another video shows a Terran fleet launching nukes at the Kar Istagan farmworld. Another video shows a human and Qatar engaging in a barroom brawl with a Qatar losing consciousness. A final video shows the last days of the Dakathar Imperium as a massive fleet of Terran vessels reject their surrender in favor of glassing the planet. The Dakathar Imperium attempted to take humans as slaves. They, quote, fecked around and found out. Both feared and beloved in the galaxy, humans are described as endearing, beautiful, adorable, cute, soft, or simply, in the case of the Qatar, damn sexy. Humans are always in high demand as their appearance is extremely pleasing, their physical presence calming, and their overall demeanor very engaging. Humans are also highly prized for their creativity but also their uncanny ability with machines, technology, and aptitude with starships. Screen reverts to Eric Thrantar and his study. This concludes the basic guide to human interaction. We included humans in this as they insisted in the name of being fair, 
Let the galaxy be allowed to describe them in turn. We hope that this basic guide to interaction can result in a stable and healthy relationship for millennia to come. Cheesy music begins to play, followed by cute hand-drawn pictures of species that play with humans. An Elivarchus with a child riding a saddle while they corral a herd of sheep. A Lorientus wearing a cowboy hat, playing cards with four other humans in an old saloon. A Mentodium at a barbecue with humans, chasing after a raccoon that has stolen someone's hat. A guitar male engaging in contact sports, known as soccer, with a group of humans, to a cheering crowd. And finally, a very cute picture of a human juvenile asleep with a head resting on the thorax of a sleeping Varadianus. Video ends. End of story. 2071. Spear and Shield, written by Totally a Ninja. Our colony was financed by nobles seeking a new luxury planet. Our existence was merely to prepare for their opulence. We were fine with that. We left to escape overpopulation and seek a new life on the frontier. We hoped to make a new life for ourselves. Blood, sweat, and tears are spent towards a better future, rather than crushed under claw by those around you. We built a community around our communal struggles. We strived to do better. Do not repeat the mistakes that led to this choice. We went out of our way to talk, learn, and care about one another. We built this colony. There were others amongst us who joined and helped. Some from the start stayed to help start up and left soon after. Others came and went as they pleased. Some traders, others vagabonds, seeking something new. Some came upon seeing what we had built and chose to stay. He was amongst the first. We knew little back then. We know more now. He had not a lick of combat training to his name, military or otherwise. He was an actor, something that he would occasionally discuss with enough booze and a merry mood. He helped where he could, and even with his age, he did more work than a whole team's. He was a daunting at first, like most Terran, on average twice our size and three times to five times as dense. Nature and science honed to a T and then tossed across the cosmos with reckless abandon. We feared him some, but as we built our community, we realized that we had already begun to fail. As a group, we greeted him and thanked him for his help. Some of us quite literally quivering, and others are on standby to assist medically, should the need arise. He greeted us with a polite smile and thanked us for the welcome. We slowly came to understand. He came here to find peace, away from the central system. His more personal life only came during festivals. With enough booze and cheer in the air, he spoke freely. Of his daughter's death, his depression, and how he abandoned his career to come here and fade into obscurity. He carved his own place amongst us, and we welcomed him wholeheartedly. He was one of us, and that's all that mattered. Years went on, and our colony got bigger and better. We were led by a council of our own vote. Leaders of their division speak for their collective on topics and concerns that affect them, solving them together as a collective, leaning on one another in times of need. We were content with our lives until the Susat declared war on our homeland. We thought that as a colony near the far reaches, we would be fine. But they came for us eventually. We spent two years fearing the worst and it had come to pass. Three months were then spent in futile resistance. 
we lost an old front, and they soon dropped troops to take the colony for themselves. He declared that he would not stand by, and soon vanished into the nearby woods. A foolish decision, and we assumed that he went in to take his life on his own terms. Within the week, they had taken the colony and converted it into their own base. We were forced to labor to fuel their war machine. Our lives once again under the boot of another uncaring force. We had tasted freedom, but we know what it would have cost. So we did our best to shield our young. We bowed low so they may one day stand tall as we once had the chance. He returned on the seventh month since they came. He had changed since we last saw him. We thought him a ghost till he spoke. A simple greeting like the colony hasn't changed a day since he was last saw him. But his actions spoke differently. He laid before us fresh meat to feed the young, he said, swiftly vanishing back into the forest, having delivered the parcel of game and greens. We knew it was risky. Meat was for them, not us. We saw the look on our young and we resolved ourselves. Most of us didn't know how to hunt, so we took watch as others foraged. We fished whilst we did laundry, and we saved what we could for communal broths. Our young was everything. They united us once again, our meals together, creating a powerful bond. He was bonded in spirit. He kept watch over us, diverting attention as we needed it when we slipped up at first. He continued to provide small game, teaching us in brief whispers and scrawled notes, and stirred the forest to draw focus from them. He had never left, nor did he lay down and die as we had thought. He had chosen to live. He downloaded what information he could while he had time during our initial invasion. Survival methods, hunting tactics, and more. He honed his skills like he once did as an actor, embodying the knowledge of the trade through practice and experimentation. He looked vastly different from when we were still a small colony. He used to wear baggy clothing that emanated comfort and warmth. He used to speak in a slow and calm manner, like time itself had chosen to relax and listen to his words. His presence was loud and comforting, even when simply sitting and reading a book on his break. He no longer resembled that. Fear we had painstakingly stripped crept back in while we reappeared, covered head to toe in loose but form-fitting rags, masked in mud and herbs to blend in, wielding a simple spear and shield, he spoke swift and softly, always alert and ready to vanish at a moment's notice. He could not be seen nor detected unless he desired so. His spear came to be fear-inducing, starting as a simple stick and stone. It eventually came to may much more. The blade was a knife stolen from them right out of their fault, and the shaft from the death throes of a broken hollowsome projector meant to teach the children. It became our symbol to fight for ourselves, our rights, and our way of life. His shield was originally a spare pantlet, covered in leaves and hide to conceal it. He stole a micro-shield generator and hooked it up to a wrist bambrace. The shield was a hard light barrier that changed shape as he desired. His intuition and cleverness with the technology were what allowed it to be so useful to him. It came to be our symbol of what we fight for, to protect ourselves and others, using whatever means we must. His spear and shield were more than symbolic. They were tested again and again. Fresh blood was a common sight on his spear, be it fresh game to feed our young, or one of them seeking glory hunting him in his domain. His shield was later on seen often deployed, not for himself, but others. 
chartering them with both it and his own body so they may get to safety. He bore the burden we feared and failed to take up for far too long. Our spears were pathetic, but they were enough. We bid our times and waited for moments to strike. Ingenuity and cunning made up for skill and strength. They came in all forms, wielded by many, slowly striking true and drawing blood here and there. Our shields were flimsy at best, but they served well enough. We bowed our heads to appease their will. We shouted our young first and foremost, and we shielded them well. Our shields have failed on many occasions, but we bore the strikes ourselves, if we must, so our young didn't have to. He led the first charge when the rebellion finally happened. He prepared us, taught us, and cared for us. His age made every wound potentially fatal. He bled first and ate last, leaving it to our young. His wounds were to be the last treated, for he vanished till the rest of us were treated. He led the final charge with his final breath. His spear pinned their commander to a wall so he could slay him with his shield. Our spears weren't to be feared, for it was our shields that we never let go. He spoke loudly for once, a scream of his daughter's name. His reason to live is long lost, but ours would live on. He had moments left when I reached his side. We had won and we took the colony. Unrecognizable as it was when he first went into the forest. He was content with the news. His face at peace. We assembled who could witness his final moments. My daughter would have wanted me to do more. I chose to live, to fight so that you all did not have to suffer what I did. It was a cruel twist of fate I came here of all places. My daughter, bless her soul, may she be proud of who I am. His reason for fighting was now clear. His last words were a final blessing to us and our young. We continued on. We rebuilt our colony. We raised our young and told them of his deeds. We grew and expanded into our hub world, a diverse point for those seeking a new frontier or trade lines going in and out, and a unique culture tied to a local history. His forest is a regional asset. Only the young and their parents may enter to learn to survive and to hear his tale. The colony was renamed to his daughter's name, for without her, we would not be here. Her memory shall be enshrined by us and our young. We bear her memory in place of the one who sacrificed his own for ours. We lay down our spears and shields around the forest, a fence of honor and remembrance in his name. We carry them in spirit passing them down through the generations, so our young may never be defenseless and uncared for. They bear our spears and shields as we once did, as he once did. End of story. I'd quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Lord Andrical, Dragzoon WRE, Holly's sister, Ambrose Cattell, and Quantum Wednesday. Thank you very much.